0: in the tall grass wish i had a pilot in a podcast wish i had a strong donkey that can haul ass and travel with portable speakers playing boss scads i wish i had a million dollars i wish i had a million albums i wish i had a million problems that way i couldn't pinpoint all one million outcomes i wish i found a genie lamp i wish them girls gave me them sugar like beanie man yeah. I wish I was a comedian, late-night sitcom syndicated on TV land. I wish this well had water in it. These kids are stealing all my pennies. Focused on my wealth, you can help me wish, but I would rather wish for help. It's like, it's like, I wish, I wish, that every time we love and it, it feels just like this. I wish, I wish, that every time we do it, it feels just like this. like, like this. I wish, I wish, that every time we love and it feels just like this, it feels just like this, it feels, I-, I wish I had a time machine, wish I had a better rhyming speed, wish that I could speak to giants after climbing up a green stalk that grew from a lime bee. I wish that I could spread my wings, I wish that I had seven limbs, yeah, that way I'd hold on to everything life. When I hear people wishing for the better things. I wish I spoke fluent Spanish. Dime lo, dime lo. At least I kinda understand it. <laughs> wish that I could throw the deuce like gambit and get so large I could play pool with the planets. Yeah. I wish I was an astronaut. I wish I knew more classic rock. <laughs> Focused on myself. You can't help me wish, but i would rather bitch for help. It's like, it's like I wish, I wish that every time we love in the feels just like it's like <laughs> I wish, I wish And every time we do it It feels just like this, like this. Like. I wish, I wish And every time we move in It feels just like this Feels just like this Feels like. just It's like Like who the you We would turn some dumb shit Into something that got everybody wild in our circumference Make assumptions It so ain't nothing new Fuck a motherfucker you I'll be true to these rounds Flames last a loop over loo Young old student Of a better Carolina rights. Two J's and I'm die nobody Good time, I'm singing in a chaplain Hello to say cats it and kittens
1: and welcome to the newest episode of the debrief. I'm your host, Brianna Joy Gray. And today we are coming together on the heels of a really energetic debate with Norm Finkelstein. You know, no stranger to Colin. Last time he was on, we had a really wonderful, substantive three-hour conversation about some of the issues like free speech that we touched upon in today's episode. But the bulk of the episode was a discussion about some of the ways that the left talks about Roe v. Wade and abortion rights and whether or not they are insufficiently, we are insufficiently sensitive to widespread feelings of moral ambiguity around the issue. I think it's always useful to talk to Norm Finkelstein because if nothing else, he helps me sharpen my arguments and he has been generous enough to say he was going to join us again tonight. I think that I've got him dialing in now. Hi, Norm. I don't hear you, Brianna. Okay, let's just work out this. Okay, one... One second, I'm gonna just work out this um, technical issue, make sure everything is going properly through the... I don't hear you. Just one second. Is that, can you hear me now? Nope, wait. Okay. How about that? Can you hear me Norm? Norm, can you hear me now?
2: I don't hear you.
1: Interesting. Okay. Can you guys can you guys hear Norm on the on the call in? Let me know if you can hear Norm on the call in while I fix this part of it. i uh, got the phone up. System preferences. Apologies for the delay. We always have to do this a little bit. Um, I'm doing it through a, norm, uh, a Zoom call uh, with Norm because he doesn't have the app. So this is just a little bit complicated. But we know we've wrangled it before and we can wrangle it again. So we're going to do the output through... The roadcaster and the input through okay it's like the advice has no input controls that doesn't make any sense Hi, Brianna. hey is this any better now i hear you fine okay and do you can you still hear me yeah i hear you fine okay perfectly and, uh, perfect rather and how about you guys on the colin app can you hear norm is this is this any better he has low volume but can be heard no i want you to be able to hear him through the device okay you can hear us both excellent perfect okay norm welcome back to colin brianna we have to get
2: down to brass tacks you can't just be chatting how was the date last night don't give me the graphic details i'm
1: just asking on the
2: scale of one, to <laughs> it
1: five. was fine. We I mean, just went to dinner, but no, I think that the the people, the people are really eager. I think I like what you said to so get down to brass tacks, and I do think we were talking past each other a little bit because, yeah. Go ahead. What, what was what was your read of it? Uh, well,
2: first of all, I'm not here to flatter you. That's not my um, residential in life. But a lot of people I know follow you, so I get a lot of feedback. And- One thing that concerns me, and here I'm being serious, um, there seems to be a tendency for each of us to talk over the other. And I would like moving into the future that we both try very hard to avoid that. So we'll figure out a way. Uh, We're both, I think, alpha personalities. And so there's a tendency to want to get the first word, the middle word, and the last word. Uh, So let's just try to, Work out a modest vivendi so that doesn't happen, and uh, I send you the email from Jamie, who's a very brilliant guy. And as you could see, he writes astute emails. We have substantive; uh, it's not tweets. It's substantive exchanges of opinion, and uh, I felt what he said was correct. So, um, look, not every word, not every interview works perfectly. So we just chalk it off to experience and. As I like to say, everyone makes mistakes in life. The real challenge is to learn from them. Uh, You're not going to go through life without error, but you can go through life learning. So we'll figure out a way to uh, make each conversation as substantive as possible, because uh, as Jamie wrote to me today, you are the best interviewer now out there, as he put it, by a country mile. So. I want to maximize that opportunity. You, you read, you think, uh, and you have a you have a vibrant personality, which are kind of like you're not dour. Uh, <laughs> well,
1: so. look, I, I feel the same same way, Norm. And I think the our the, I, I wouldn't consider our interview unsuccessful. I do think that sometimes we are mostly agreeing, and that it is difficult to keep sight of where we are substantively agreeing what we understand of each other. And I think that sometimes there's the um, assumption that we are disagreeing and then we have to like explain ourselves when in fact we're on the same page. So what I, what I saw was that I I understood that you were making an an argument and I don't mean to rehash it all, but I understood that you were making an argument about how some many, I would argue liberals are uh, insisting that something new has happened here on the Supreme court and that Alito has made up a new kind of standard of review in whole cloth. And that under the traditional standard of review, of course there is no place in either history or in the text to find a right to abortion and therefore to be surprised that the outcome is sort of naive. And the point that I was making is not that Alito made something up out of whole cloth, but that to the extent that we say we don't have a right to abortion in the constitution, you could say the same thing about any number of unenumerated rights. And I take issue with the idea of only going out of one's way as a leftist, out of a sense of kind of justice and fairness and equality and even handedness in saying that we don't have a right to choose when we have as much of a right to choose as we do any number of unenumerated rights that have been established. And that if only because you accept that third-prong precedent, the precedent is clear that we have a right for the last almost 50 years to choose. But I really do take your point more broadly that a lot of people are beha- responding to this in a way that ultimately serves to lend more credibility, frankly, to the court. And it's the, the kind of typical call that liberals do for norms. Why don't anybody respect norms? Why are the conservatives on the court not respecting norms? And to, to listen to your point, is like they are doing what they've are, always done. I completely and totally agree. How, how, does, that, does that seem to sum up our or disagreement to you? Does that seem like an accurate
2: accounting? Uh, That's totally accurate. I would just add one qualification on the word caveat. The caveat is, I think you occasionally, probably only because you're speaking extemporaneously, you make this conflation between not having a right and not having a constitutional right. Mm -hmm. There are different ways to get rights. You get rights through a legislative process. That's how the Voting Rights Act was passed. That's how the Civil Rights Act was passed. Or you can get a right through an amendment. That's how the 14th, 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments uh, changed the Constitution. So to say that you can't find a right in the Constitution is not the equivalent of saying you don't have the right. There are different ways to acquire rights. And as I said in the last program, I'm kind of old-fashioned. I don't believe nine justices should be deciding the fate of 360 million people on the basis of what the liberal judges call, call our reasoned judgment that's the standard they want to use they don't want they say we're not textualists we're not originalists we believe that you can set a standard based on Our reasoned judgment. Well, frankly, I don't want them to be making that decision about their reasoned judgment. I don't trust it. I don't trust how they even got onto the court. I don't trust their academic pedigree. I don't trust their class pedigree. I don't trust any of it. And in the last analysis and even the first analysis, I rather rights be rested or won by popular movements. That's how I think democracy should advance.
1: Yeah, and I'd agree. But my framing was just that, that thing that you're afraid, you like, that you're concerned about, the court having more power, I'd argue, you know, nothing I'm saying is giving it more power. I'm not arguing that we should rely on the Supreme Court for the right to choose. But what I am saying is that the status quo is that the court is doing exactly what you described to rely on its individualized judgment of nine unelected human beings and me av- and me saying there's just as much of an ability for them to on you know out of caprice decide we have a right to choose as a right to carry an a you know an ar-57 wherever you want through a city those are equally equally found in the constitution and i, I see that i i see that i recognize it
2: but i'm actually what you might call a hyper conservative on this question Way back when, I've forgotten which court case it was now, but Hugo Black, it may have been in Griswold, but I don't, don't put my, you know, don't uh, uh, invest too much in that. He said, unless it's in the Constitution, it's not a right, unless you want to turn the Supreme Court into platonic guardians. I thought I disconnected it. Give me one half moment. Sure. Unless you want, he said, unless you want to turn the Supreme Court into platonic guardians. And then he said, A, I don't know how you choose a guardian. You know, how do you know who is the philosopher king and who isn't? And B, I don't think the court should be in the business of doing that. And I agree with that. I think his is the most conservative position because there are those who say, well, it may not be literally in the Constitution, but you could still tease it out under unenumerated rights. He said there's no such thing as unenumerated rights. I won't go into the technicalities, but he said if it's not there, then go through the democratic process and create that right. And otherwise you have platonic guardians. And I agree with that. If there's because no such thing. Oh, because most of the courts are so mediocre. I mean, you've read, you've read these opinions. They're just so poorly argued, so embarrassingly argued. The prose is so wretched. You know, most of the time uh, Scalia, uh, he did have a gift for language. I'll give him that. I found him utterly obnoxious. But most of the time, he's just mocking the language of the court because most of the time the court sounds like a hallmark card. <laughs> it's just really embarrassing to even read it. So why delegate so much power to them? Because of their
1: academic pedigree? No, excuse me, unimpressed. Well, when you say that you don't, that there, there, whoever this person is that you're citing says that you know, there's no unenumerated rights. Hugo Black. Okay. Yeah. If you if Hugo, right. Hugo Black says there's no unenumerated rights, what does he make of the Ninth Amendment?
2: He makes of the Ninth Amendment. I don't want to get into technicalities, but he said the Ninth Amendment simply stipulates that there are many rights that states still retain, that states still retain, even though they haven't been enumerated in the amendments to the Constitution. So it's simply a differentiation between federal rights and states' rights. It has nothing to do with uh, fundamental rights that we as individuals still preserved. I'm not saying I agree with his interpretation, and I recognize it's a minority view. As I said, most other conservative judges don't go that far. But in fact, his opinion resonated most with me because he was the one who simply said, otherwise you're turning the Supreme Court into platonic judges. And I agree that shouldn't be. And I, when the conservatives were in the minority on the court, course, when they were in the minority, they were constantly attacking this idea that the liberals can exercise their reason judgment to determine what are our rights. And they kept saying, really your reason judgment? Who decided that you, based on your reason judgment, determine what our rights are? I thought it's the people that's supposed to determine what our rights are. That was right. Now they're in the majority. So forget that. They're going to start using their reason judgment. And now it's going to be the liberals who are going to start complaining. What do you mean your reason judgment? But, But
1: that's that's the thing, Norm. They've always been able to use their reason judgment and more even more insidious than that. They're able to use precedent and case law and all of those regressive tools that are fully within the toolbox of jurists and have always been that are, are fundamentally regressive in their nature. So it's like, I I don't disagree with the idea that like, you know, it's dangerous to expand the, the power of a court generally speaking and allow judges to go off on frolics and detours. But it does feel like when you say we can't create new unenumerated rights, but a hundred percent, they can continue to do dastardly horrible things and attribute it to history and, um, the text and precedent, you're basically cutting off the left arm for some sake of, I think, generalized principle when it really doesn't get you where you want to go with respect to court reform. Now, I agree with you that you don't want the court to run crazy and have and have so much power invested in it. But the reality is cutting off the only kind of leftward opportunity for the, the courts to invent laws isn't going to keep them from Uh, slashing the uh, government's ability to have uh, environmental reform, saying that corporations have rights, overturning the the Voting Rights Act, and all the other kind of things that they do. They're going to do that regardless of whether or not you say they also have the potential to do something progressive on the left-hand side. So for me, your concern, which I think is core and accurate, that the court has become the primary avenue for left aspirations, it's troublesome because it siphons off all of this energy that could be on the left that could be going toward, I think, more um, productive avenues than just like hoping that Supreme Court justices are going to do for us what legislatures won't and what organizing really will. But I just don't think like my focus would be on abolishing the court, reforming the court, packing the court, doing some of these other kinds of things as opposed to kind of emphasizing that, of course, the conservatives are right in this instance that you can't make things up on the court. If they want to make things up, at least I want the left to have tools to make things up that are in a progressive direction and not just concretize the tools that they have and have always had to make things up in a regressive direction.
2: Well, the place where I disagree with you, as as you've said, uh, it often comes down to the the margins where we disagree rather Mm -hmm. than the 99 percent where we agree. The place where I disagree with you is uh, what one should do, in my opinion, is to look back in history and examine, uh, you said, just to refer back, the court will do what the court wants to do, what the court has always done, but there are moments in history where that wasn't the case. And then a historian or a political activist, to get about an academic title, a political activist rationally We'll look at that moment and see what happened. So the court was very conservative in the first third of the 20th century. As you know, What's called, I don't want to lose your listeners, but what's called the Lochner court, where the court started to pass all of this legend uh, make render all these opinions saying that uh, any, any, any economic protections for workers were violations of contra- uh, personal autonomy, liberty, Contractual rights. And so you couldn't have uh, a maximum number of hours worked, you know, maximum hour work week. You couldn't, well, there were all sorts of things which they overruled on the grounds of liberty, 14th Amendment, contractual rights of each individual. So when did that stop? Well, Roosevelt gets elected. Mm -hmm. There's a real conflict between FDR and the court. The conflict is coming center stage. And then in 1936, Roosevelt wins overwhelmingly in the second election. And at that point, the court realized hey,
1: <laughs> we may be hanging from lampposts if we don't well, even more than that, there's we, a, don't, the, we don't chill out here. Yeah, and there's the direct threat to actually pack the court and diminish their power overall. So there, there was a threat to the, pack the court, that's one
2: factor. And then there was a second factor, most historians put it at the nineteen thirty-six election. Which Roosevelt won overwhelmingly, and the court realized, you know what? If we want to be able to go home quietly at night, we better cut this shit out, you know. And it's the same thing. What happened in 1954? 1954. 1954, you know, with Brown versus Board of we and where the beginnings of the liberal court, well, uh, uh, the Warren Court. The first thing about 54, you know, there's been tomes and tomes and tomes written on the Brown decision. I've read quite a few of them. Very large tomes, by the way. (laughs) And um, even though it's not really acknowledged, the, the essence of 19 of Brown was we were in the middle of a cold war, the third world was now emerging after World War II, and this Jim Crow racism just looked terrible on the international stage. The Soviet Union was exploiting it to the hilt. And they realized that if the court is going to fulfill its patriotic duty in the Cold War, it better get rid of the Jim Crow, at least formally. As you know, informally, nothing happened because of Brown, too. But formally. And it struck me, as I said, I recently, while I was preparing this book, I read some very large tomes on Brown. And as I say, it, some of it is as a you know, typical hyper-academic, hyper which refuses to see what's staring you in your eyes. It was very striking to me. When you read Du Bois, right at the time of Brown versus Board of Ed, he was ecstatic. He was very happy. You know, you may disagree. Uh, du Bois obviously didn't look at the world through rose-tinted glasses. He thought it was a very important victory. But it was very striking to me. The first thing he said is, Of course, it's because of the Soviet Union and the Cold War. Mm. He immediately understood what was going on. And so, again, it's the political moment. And so if you want to change the court's trajectory, even that very conservative court, if you want to change its trajectory, then ultimately it has to be From a mass popular movement Mm -hmm. and I want to just give one relevant example it's one that really irks me because I had a lot of faith in Bernie Sanders and I still like Bernie Sanders that will not change that's a constant nonetheless what irks me about Bernie is and this will return to the same point believe me I'm not losing you I'm not going (laughs) off um Throughout his campaign, which you know as well as I do, I won't say better than me because I was following it like Ahab and Moby (laughs) did, 24 7, turning on, where is he, (laughs) blah, 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 you know, the car. Okay. He was constantly confronted with the same question Bernie, how will you get your program through Congress if you're elected? And he kept giving the same answer, which seemed to me the correct answer for a person of the left. Mm -hmm. He kept saying, of course I won't be able to get the program through Congress unless there are masses of people in the street. Mm -hmm. And we have to keep the revolution going. And then what happens? Biden gets elected. Bernie occupies a uh, salient position in the Biden administration. And then all of a sudden, all the blame, all the blame for what's going awry in the Biden administration is dumped on Manchin. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking to myself, wait, Bernie, you knew that if you got elected, you would probably have not only the whole Republican Party, but you would have half the Democratic Party including its entire leadership against you, Schumer, Pelosi, the whole kit and caboodle. Mm -hmm. And you said you thought you could defeat them with the juggernaut of mass popular galvanization, mobilization. And then what happens? You're not telling me one senator stopped the whole program? If you couldn't defeat one senator, how in God's name did you think you were going to put through your program against the whole Republican Party and half the Democratic Party? You couldn't defeat one, because you never did what you said you would do. You said you would mobilize masses of people. You cannot tell me, you cannot convince me if you mobilized masses of pe- uh, people, you could have knocked down Joe Manchin like a ten pin, but you never did it. And it's the same thing with the court. Yes, the court is a formidable obstacle to progress, but so was it at the time of FDR. Right. It was mobilizing people that forced the court to retreat. So So that to me is the the ultimate answer, not trying to get uh, progressive judges on the court. Though, of course, I acknowledge because no one wants to be dogmatic about these things. Progressive judges Mm -hmm. did good things. Mm -hmm. I recognize that. They did good things. But when you rely on them, woe to you when the balance
1: on the court shifts. So, to what do you attribute then Bernie's behavior? Do you think that he was being disingenuous when he talked about how he was going to accomplish things in the context of his run? Do you think that he was offered something or kind of lured by the promise of actually having Biden's ear? As some people have hypothesized,
3: no.
1: you know, do you think that they, they have his like cousin in a bunker somewhere under under threat of, you know, something terrible? I mean, to, to what do you attribute this? Because a, a lot of people do feel like it was a bait and switch of some kind. But they no. also want to think the best of Bernie, which I understand, of course.
2: No, uh, look, I don't, I don't have more expertise in that than do, than you do. Let's be clear. No, I don't. Mm. Because it happens, he lives, he was born right near me. We live in the same neighborhood. He went to my high school. And I kind of know the milieu. His parents were Polish Jews. So I know that I'm poor. And he said, you remember often he said my parents fought a lot about money growing up. And you could see it was a very painful, mm-hmm. an anguishing memory for him. Well, that all rang true. You know, I know that. I know the whole, been there, done that, and uh, wish to God I could purge it from my soul, you know. So I understand the guy, but you know as much about him as I do as a person, uh, personally. If you were to ask me what happened, uh, one thing that a, a friend of mine, a comrade of mine, friend of mine, he said was, Bernie grew the movement, but also the movement grew Bernie. Mm. It was, as they Marxists like to say, it was a dialectical relationship. Mm. Uh, Bernie grew a lot from the movement because up until the movement he was kind of a gadfly an irrelevant gadfly in Congress. You know, you say his biggest position was on the Veterans Affairs Committee. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is not exactly first tier. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like where I taught college, DePaul University, is like fourth or fifth tier. So um <laughs> it's not exactly first tier. And so what I think happened was once the movement disintegrated Bernie reverted back to his old self which is he did the best he could under the given conditions exactly what he did before the movement before Bernie grew from the movement
3: Mm -hmm.
2: and as you remember uh when Bernie started out in 2016 he was totally shocked He thought, i was just going to go to the token campaign. And all of a sudden, everywhere you turn, 25,000 people are turning out. So it was a kind of, it was, certainly it wasn't a moment of glory for Bernie, but it was an ephemeral moment. And once it passed, he reverted back to the old Bernie, the gadfly in Congress with a little more power Doing the best he could to achieve his now sharply reduced objectives. So when people try to read something sinister or nefarious in what happened to Bernie, I think they missed the point that Bernie's now what he was for 50 years. Hmm. It was just an aberration. That twenty sixteen and twenty twenty campaign, and then it evaporated mm. i I think it left an extremely important legacy for sure it's the most important political movement in our country uh, yeah I would say since the civil rights movement and in terms of its actual objectives name, namely redistribution of wealth uh since the great depression, the founding of the cio and and all of the union movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so it, 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 it has very important historical legacy from which we can learn an enormous amount. However, um, it still was relatively ephemeral. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, I think one shouldn't, I, I don't think it's correct to try to impute sinister goals to him or some um, conspiracy. Bernie is now Bernie. Yeah. You remember, it was just if you remember, for me, one of the most vivid memories of the second uh campaign run when he was up against Biden, and this whole issue of whether Biden had said he wanted to cut Social Security. Mm-hmm. And Biden said, no, that's that's not true. And Bernie's on stage and he's saying, but Joe, you said it mm-hmm. and it's on the video. Just say you said it. It's like he didn't want to hurt a friend. Yep. You know, hey, Joe, but you said it. But he didn't want to say, Joe, you're a liar. You know, I know you and many others like Christoph Ball, were saying, why didn't he just take off the kid gloves? Because that's not Bernie. Yeah. It's not Bernie. It's not not like he was holding back because he didn't want to lose a friend. I'll give you, it's because that's his nature. Let me give you one other example. When in 2016, when John Lewis was hauled out to denounce Bernie, Mm -hmm. and Lewis said, I didn't see Bernie Sanders in um, the civil rights movement, but there was Hillary and Bill. They were, you know, front and center. Now, you know that Bernie could have said, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> Hillary was a girl for Goldwater, and I belonged to, uh, not Snick, he belonged to, oh. Uh, I think it was Snick. No, it wasn't Snick. The guy, what was the guy with the patch in his eye? Um, he was a famous, oh, God. It wasn't Snick. It wasn't the Urban League. I can't remember right now. Um In any case, it was very striking to me. Bernie did not attack Lewis. He Mm -hmm. didn't call him a liar. And then if you recall what happened, the picture surfaced of Bernie getting arrested at University of Chicago. Mm -hmm. The picture surfaced. But Bernie himself, he just didn't have it in him to go after John Lewis. He just couldn't, that's yeah. just not his nature. There's no conspiracy, there's no gun to his head, and his cousin isn't being held in the bunker. You know, this is, this was Bernie's Oh, nature. it was
1: CORE. He had a, started the CORE, core chapter yeah. at his college, yeah.
2: Our CORE, and the, fam- the head of CORE was uh, African American. I can't remember his name. He had a patch in his eye. He's an interesting story, if you're ever interested in it. Do you remember... Oprah Winfrey paid for a film about this young black orator. He was like 14 years old. No. Oh, it was a wonderful movie. Who won the the speaking contest? The oratory
1: contest. Oh, at Harvard? uh, No. He wasn't at Harvard, but the competition was at Harvard. Maybe. He was at an HBCU. Maybe Howard. Maybe. Not the Great Debaters. Yes. Beautiful
2: Mm -hmm. film, by the way. Uh, and he that person became the head of corps. Mm. And he ended up, unfortunately, he took a job with the um, Nixon administration mm. working for HUD. Mm. Um, you know, a lot of history, I don't want to go all into it. But as I say, these Oh, all James ones. Farmer. He, James Farmer, yeah.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Um and so this was his character. His character for a moment he did change but when the mo- the movement dissipated he reverted back to what he had been since he entered congress a- Gadfly, but at a higher level. Well, normally let,
1: let me let me get some people in here to res, to respond if you don't mind, because the beauty of this is that it is live, and there's so many people who are really agreeing with a lot of what you said. A lot of people in the comments that I'm reading here on the app are a little harsher on Bernie than even than you are. Folks are I'm not, not willing to. Him. To, I
3: admit
1: it. I'm not harsh. To, and it's not sentimentality, right? But so but let's let's
2: give them was, a chance. I can just say that was a very moving moment in my life. I never thought I would be sitting in front of a, I don't own a television, but sitting in front of like a screen like here and hearing somebody on TV every night denouncing the 1%, denouncing Mm -hmm. big pharma, denouncing uh, um, for sure, for sure, and I think we that- we all
1: have a lot of empathy for that. But I just want to make sure because we're almost an hour into this already. I just want to make sure we get some people in the chat to ask some questions if I can. So Omar, go ahead. I don't know if you have questions for Norm Finkelstein, general comments about the episode, or questions for me. All of the above, but let us know what's on your mind.
4: Hey Brie, um, so just so, so I, I guess general comments on the episode because um, I'm, it seems to me like like Norm seems. To really have an issue with, I guess it's a kind of anti-intellectualism that's going on on the left mm-hmm. when we're presented with these kinds of situations. Like, I mean the whole the whole issue you guys are discussing with the Alito, um, his argument or whatnot, mm-hmm. the, the way he phrased it. I mean, I, it, it's obvious to me that Norm doesn't a- agree with with the reasoning behind it, but it just seems to me like it, he's really focused on on how we should not avoid um going into these conversations and 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 dealing with the issues head on um Mm -hmm. i guess one good example that i have of this was actually in your conversation with um andrew sullivan Mm
3: -hmm.
4: where he keeps bringing up all these cultural issues right and i guess if you were any other person or or activist leftist twitter person i mean you just start shouting out racist and bigot and all this kind of stuff and uh, when, when you were talking to Andrew, you made this really, really good point where you're saying how, like, you're acknowledging these issues or deficiencies, whatever he was kind of bringing up in terms of the cultural aspects when, mm-hmm. when discussing on Black people. But basically, you're, you're not to saying that you're shying away from the issues that he's bringing up, but that rather the left's approach to it is not, not bringing up these issues as an excuse to why we shouldn't help people.
3: Mm -hmm.
4: But rather than rather to um, bring up these issues as an acknowledgement and and show how how there's been multiple literature trying to address all these these different problems that were coming up. Mm -hmm. Um, It might be a little obfuscated at the moment, but it it just seems to me to, to go at the root of the issue where where. I agree with Norm. He seems to be really focused on the pursuit of of truth as he says it, you know, it can be a whole different philosophical debate, but, um, but I agree with his, his, his insistence on how we're supposed to, you know, seat some ground sometimes when, whenever it is necessary or, or be able to confront some issues that we're presenting presented with as leftists rather than just kind of spaz out and start, you know, just calling people or all sorts of names. Um, I guess another situation where I was thinking of a similar example was with the, like with the trans issue and and then Chappelle, when he said that stupid comment, he said, what did you say? Gender is is a fact. Mm
3: -hmm.
4: I mean, if you say like biological sex is a fact, that's a whole different, a whole different statement in my opinion. Mm -hmm. But let's just say he would have said biological sex is a fact, like, Mm -hmm. you know, then that's a whole different conversation that we're having. And then I just feel like we're, we're always... You know, just going straight to to the shutdown. Even with the last episode with um, with um, was it Esperanza and Kim?
3: Mm-hmm.
4: I just noticed a lot a lot of the same dynamics, and and I don't know. I just agree with Norm. Like some, sometimes we we should be able to be a little bit more. Um. I don't know. Just have have a little bit more of an intellectual approach of how we we approach these conversations, especially when some inconvenient points or facts are are brought up. I know it might not be too relevant to this whole abortion conversation, but it's just a constant that I noticed from the last episode too.
1: Yeah, no, I, I agree as well. I'm not sure what name-calling or kind of histrionics there are about the Supreme Court conversation. Like, I, I agree with Norm that there is a approach by liberals that kind of puts too much credibility in the court and therefore is very much, you know, kind of blown away by what's happened. But I'm the person who gets – pilloried every day on the internet because i tweeted back in 2017 that bullying people about the supreme court was not going to move voters who are already disaffected from the democratic party
4: exactly Um, and and it it seems like the professor's just really taking up an issue with people who just want to blow off alito as some kind of um, religious fanatic or whatever What's right, that mean, but like, that's like, that's
1: where Norm and I differ. I think that it can be true that Alito is a religious fanatic, and also yeah, you shouldn't have been putting trust in the court in the first
4: instance. Exactly the point, and and, and I agree with that that fact. Um, you you can't just discard his opinion or whatever, but you can still acknowledge that the opinion comes from this kind of uh, that kind of ideology. Ideology.
1: Yeah, I mean, l- let me. What do you what do you think of that, Norm? Because I, I don't know, I. I I feel as though the right has not been subtle about they've been very open about their ideological project. They invented textualism. They invented um, originalism as a discipline in order to dress up their political motives. You can read it right there in the Powell memo in the 1970s. They've been executing that plan for the last 50 years, and now a lot of it is coming to fruition. So I guess my point isn't you know oh my god Alito is a you know is a maniac sent down from you know heaven or something like that the reality is that they have an agenda The agenda is a political one they have the right has been exploiting evangelicals for the last 40 uh 50 years or so um and that this isn't I mean, this isn't a, a mystery. So we, should be, we shouldn't be—we should buy in to their framing and say, oh, no, 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 they're just doing history. This is how the court's supposed to be done. When, no, they have a very explicit ideological project, and we can be honest about that. And in fact, we must be honest about that if we have any hope of confronting it. Does that not, oh, I think I lost Norm. Um, one second, sorry. But go ahead, go ahead and respond, um, Omar, while I try to get him back.
4: Um, I mean, I just feel like I might be going back, back and forth with, with what I said earlier. But, like, like you said, I mean, I'm in, in complete agreement. Like, um, the, the Alito, the the way he wants to go about reasoning through his decision, um, it's just really hard because. You know, Norm wants us to kind of wrestle with it, with the fact that this prison has this kind of belief, and what are we gonna do about it? Without just saying, "Oh, he's just some religious fanatic bigot," and that's it, and that's where it ends. And and I do get that. And I, on the other hand, the left just always seems to have this problem now, where like our back is against the ropes, and we can't we can't concede anything, even if it's a fair point. I don't know. I, I just feel there's there's a lot of points, a lot of debating where. We shy away. We shy. We shy away from from certain inconvenient facts or points that aren't necessarily inconvenient, but should give us an opportunity to to expand on 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 our our position.
1: So, what do you what is, in your view, Omar, the way that the left should be addressing the
4: overturning of Roe? I mean, in this case, it's just really hard because. I mean, if I'm not going to talk to you in terms of like the Supreme Court, just down here in terms of the way my conversations go with other people or stuff that I see online, people are just like, oh, if you have a religious perspective on abortion, I just can't talk to you. And it's just so freaking hard because I'm not going to say that the religious perspective is necessarily right for the whole population. But then at the end of the day, I do have to acknowledge that that is a position that somebody is taking. And normally was expressing his issue with the way we kind of just want to we just want to blow off people who have any kind of religious perspective on these kinds of issues as some kinds of idiots and i don't agree with that you know Mm -hmm. as 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 wrong as the position may be we just can't go about saying oh you're just some religious fanatic and i just cannot have any dialogue with you at the end of the day because of religion
3: Mm
1: -hmm.
4: um yeah
1: yeah uh, I, I agree. What do you? What do you? Do you have anything to say to that, Norm? I'm sorry, I know you We're cut off for some of it.
2: Um, my my reaction to that is there has to be a acknowledgement that this is a morally complex issue, and allow me to try to illustrate it as a factual matter. Roe was passed in 1973. And even though the case kept being referred back to the court, or I should say the case kept being referred back to the court, a full half century elapsed and yet there was no reconciliation or acquiescence in the opinion. On the other hand, it's very striking to me, we may disagree here, but of course we're free to disagree. It's striking to me that the gay marriage case, Obergefell, it was, uh, the opinion came down in 2015. And it really has not caused any movement to galvanize around overturning Obergefell. Most people have settled in it as in, okay, I don't agree with it, but they wanna get married, who the hell cares? Why was the reaction different? Why did Roe endure for 50 years, a half century, you couldn't reach a point of reconciliation? Whereas with gay marriage, It settled in pretty quickly. Well, Norma, I have to push back against that a a little bit. Let me just finish the complete thought and then go ahead. My view is the reason why is Obergefell didn't raise any particularly profound moral questions. Roe did. And there, it seems to me, has to be a recognition of that. That's why I I couldn't accept the argument of the dissenters in Dobbs when they said that Roe fit in neatly with Griswold. Griswold, for your listeners, was the famous Supreme Court opinion legalizing the use of contraception. For people your own age, it was probably kind of lunatic the idea that up until 1965, you couldn't legally obtain contraception in large parts of the country. 1965, I'm already 12 years old, and it's it's illegal. But you have to recognize, I think, Bri, Brianna, you have to recognize the right to use a diaphragm or condom The Stanley case in 1969, the right to look at pornography in the privacy of your home. These are fundamentally different issues than abortion. And gay marriage, I think, fits in neatly with Griswold, with Stanley, with Loving, the right to interracial marriage. But it's just not true that Roe fits in neatly with those cases because there is an additional factor, factor, that potential or whatever you want to call it, that potential life, whatever you want to call it, that is a distinct factor. And so I, I think the point of departure of any rational Debate on this question is to acknowledge that there is a almost, I would say, unique question here, and that the, so to speak, other side has legitimate concerns. I don't think the other side has a lot of legitimate concern on whether or not two people have the right to use birth control. I don't think the other side has a legitimate concern as to whether a black person and a white person should have the right to marry. But I do think there is a legitimate concern about the moral and biological status of that fetus. So I think the the point of departure has to be a certain candor, a certain honesty, and not just hurling epithets trying to box somebody in as being religious therefore
1: backward therefore stupid etc and so on so i'm not doing any of that i'm not hurling any epithets etc however i think that it's a distinction without a difference i can sit here and make an argument for why gay sex is distinctive, I can make an argument for why gay marriage is distinctive, I can make an argument for why contraceptive is distinctive, I can make an argument for why interracial marriage is distinctive, because all of those are obviously different issues, and the whole point of the law is becoming very good at distinguishing things that you want to distinguish, and finding similarities between things you want to distinguish, but want to find similar, and grandfather into existing precedent, and that's why I always, that's that's the pushback I give to you, is that certain things can be very self-evident if it's framed in a certain way and you frame it in a different way and it seems very much not self-evident. And I'm not denying that there are stakes in abortion that seem to be more visceral for people or more galvanizing for people than other things. But I also think that's a lot of revisionist history happening. And that people felt very strongly just 10 or 15 years ago that the Bible was very clear about marriage between, being between a man and a woman and gay marriage undermining the social fabric and all of this other kind of stuff. And it was a cultural sh- shift that got us here. And when you talk about how abortion is unique and cite as evidence, the fact that it wasn't, it, you know, in 50 years, it was never codified and now it's been overturned. Gay marriage, we just got it. We just got all of these things in the last decade or so. And already, wait a minute, Norm, already we have Republicans in the wake of Dobbs saying that they're coming after contraceptives, they're coming after gay marriage, and even some, one recently said they were coming after uh, interracial marriages as well. We have a a Congress member who just got written up because he attended his own son's gay wedding like a day after he voted against same-sex marriage in the House. So I suspect we also have not codified any of these other rights, which you you know, are characterizing as more easily acceptable and generally like not as galvanizing as abortion. But I don't know that we're in a safety zone yet where we can say, well, history has shown that all of these different rights were so, so different than gay marriage. I, sorry, it's so, so different than abortion.
2: Well, first of all, I, I have to grant that. You're right. It's too, too soon to tell. It's simply my as it were, prediction Mm -hmm. that gay marriage will not be able to mobilize or galvanize people the way Roe did. The reason being there is a fundamental issue at stake in Roe, which is hard to ignore. Now, you make the correct point in my view that anyone can draw analogies or draw distinctions. And you can find between any two two events or any two pieces of legislation, You can find analogies and you can find distinctions. Where I think your argument falls apart, is it's pretty straightforward. If you read Roe, Roe itself states that abortion does raise the unique issue they call it of potential life. And that's why Roe enters a very significant. Stipulation, no abortion in the third trimester. In other words, it itself acknowledged that abortion is different. Nobody says there are any limits on gay marriage, any limits on gay sex, The you know, the um, uh, bowers Hardwood case. Nobody ever says there's any limits on in interracial marriage but Roe itself said we have a right to protect prenatal life it said there is a distinction here so even in the legis- even in the court opinion on Roe they're acknowledging there is something different going on here. But, but the, the question is whether there's something... And Alito, or in the, 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 the Bob's opinion, they cleverly picked up on that. They said, no, there's no neat line connecting Griswold to Roe. If there were a neat line, or a, a line neatly... Then why do the court say we have a right to put limits on abortion? Nobody said we had rights to put a limit on contraception because it's different. All right, and so, I, don't, mm-hmm. I don't understand. You know, Brianna, sometimes we want to score the polemical points. I, Believe I, me, I, I, I don't. I don't want to score the po-
1: <laughs> polemical point. Nor you're just too north not to see but, that. norm what i'm asking you to say is that you your whole argument is so invested in the supreme court but what, what no, i'm trying no, to explain no. to you is you you see me as weirdly invested in the supreme court what i'm trying to explain to you is i, I don't I care do you're citing no, but norm I, I, you're citing row at me you know no, I, I, I hear your point norm okay. my my investment is i would love to just finish that I, point i was making I, really quickly
2: if i could if I in my class and there's a woman who raises her hand and she says in a kind of low voice little tremulous voice i happen to oppose abortion i don't want to have to shut her down by saying well that's because you're a fanatical
1: catholic who's telling you you have to do that who who in the context no, of this because, conversation that we're having because, is telling anybody that they're a fanatical I catholic I I think there's legitimacy to your argument. I believe that. You, you can fairly tell her that, but I'm not that person. And so I don't know why we're, no, neither of us is having a discussion with her. We're having a discussion with each other. And the point I'm making is not that anybody is a fanatical Catholic. Although I do think that there is a way that evangelicalism in and in a very narrow understanding of the world that emphasizes potential life, which we're all accepting as a relevant factor here. That I do not concede my point on the podcast, my point now, and my point, if I were the one that was writing role would be, I don't give a fig about potential life. There's potential life all over the place. I could decide that I was born with 400 eggs and that's all the potential life in the world. And to murder me is to murder 401 people. I could decide a whole lot of things based on a lark and a prayer and a decision and whatever I think the old Testament says, but I'm, I'm, I'm trying to make a different kind of an argument, which is to reject a lot of the presumptions that are, in fact, frankly, religious that we don't even realize are religious. And that Roe, I think, conceded unwarrantedly. And so I'm not here to defend whether or not Roe is more or less in line with Griswold or any of these other kinds of privacy cases than a certain other kind of thing, or whether or not its constitutionality depends on that. I don't care about any of it. I think that you have a right to choose just like you have a, a right to health care. And I'm not especially interested in what the Supreme court says about it because as you so rightly pointed out, the Supreme court says what power dictates when the Supreme court was about to cock up the most, uh, the agenda of the most uh, popular president in the history of America that it had to back down when he flexed his power and when movements flex their power and said, you're not going to overturn this agenda. And at very Discrete points in American history, the left has wielded that power to get good results at its Supreme Court. But as guests that we've had on the show have explained, that happens so infrequently, oh, including goodness. with Brown, which was like not even a real win. It happens so in- because of Brown, too, as you've explained. It happens so infrequently that I, since probably two a year, haven't given a fig what the Supreme Court says or have, haven't been reliant on it for any kind of outcome that's going to save. Marginalized people in the United States. So I'm not disagreeing with the substance of what the legal arguments are. I am asking you, I'm saying, well, I'm not asking you to do anything. I'm just trying to explain that my perspective is I don't respect Alito's argument. I don't respect that he can make a case within the bounds of the law because the law is a fundamentally rigged system that is inequitable and is structured in a way that is going to yield results more frequently and more favorably for regressive politics, which is why I don't think we should make arguments that shore up the legitimacy of those kind of legal arguments, even if they are technically the best at playing by the rules of a rigged and broken system. Do you know what I'm saying? I know what you're saying, but I think we're talking across purposes, because I was trying to
2: respond to your uh, listener's question. Mm -hmm. He asked, what should the left do? So what should the left do? I said, the point of departure has to be a certain amount of candor and recognition that this is not an easy question to resolve. And that the arguments on the other side are not necessarily born of backwardness, primitiveness, religious fanaticism, and especially, uh, it's not necessarily born of misogyny. Now, I will certainly acknowledge that there is a hard core about whom that applies uh misogyny uh primitivity religious fanaticism but we're talking about roughly roughly half the population
1: mm-hmm. and wait who, I, who, who like, half the population does what because about 60 percent plus of americans want a row to be maintained to be up to
2: uh, 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 brianna i i am not sure how closely you follow the polls uh i did look i did follow them quite closely there's a broad question. Do you think Roe should be maintained? Mm-hmm. And then most people think, okay, Roe means right to abortion. It should be maintained. Mm-hmm. But then they start breaking it down. Right. At what point do you think uh, abortion should be banned? That's most people
1: have no idea what viability means or all the special. But, but the Norm, provisions. Why are you focused on those other parts of the polls when the poll, the, the question, the question I played in, in the Supreme Court. By, by the way, the real question I issue, the question presented was simply whether or not a 15 week abortion ban was constitutional. They could have simply ma- decided that and said they decided to overreach the question presented and decide whether or not to overturn Roe. So the literal question at hand is the initial question presented by the poll, which is, do you think Roe should be upheld? The majority of Americans think the answer to that is yes. Okay. I
2: I don't want, you know, I don't want to lose your viewers. So your listeners. Uh, So I'm not going to go into the technicalities, Mm -hmm. but as I think, you know, what Alito said, and I will admit it was probably disingenuous, but what he said was both sides, both Mississippi and the supporters of Roe, they both adamantly insisted during oral arguments they will not accept a halfway response by the court. Mm -hmm. You either uphold or don't uphold Roe. The person who tried for your argument was Roberts. Roberts said we should just limit this To whether or not 15 weeks is constitutional, and in his expression, let's leave Roe for another day. So it was Roberts who was making that argument, but both sides said, no halfway, you either uphold or you overturn Roe. So you can't blame the court for that. That was the strategy
1: both sides decided about. Well, of course I can't blame the court for that, because that's what the court decided. Both sides is still the court. No, I, this, no, is, no. this is not me batting for Sotomayor uh, uh, here. This is me saying I, I divest from investment in the court as an no, institution. No, no, no. I, I, I want to I leave
2: the court aside
1: because it
2: becomes too technical and then we lose listeners. Right no, then, I think
1: the listeners are very smart. I don't I don't I wouldn't worry about the listeners. In fact, oh, okay. they're eager to get back in here and ask some more questions if they can get an opportunity to do so.
2: Yeah. Go so, ahead. My questions? Go ahead. Yeah. Do you, you don't want to close up that point? Well, so I said, I would like to set uh, the court aside and then say, if you want to galvanize people on the issue of abortion, how should you proceed? And I said, I think the first step has to be an acknowledgement that this particular issue poses, I don't want to say unique, because you will say to me, every case presents unique. Mm -hmm. So... Poses issues which every reasonable person can understand. Mm-hmm. I'll give you a simple example because I feel, as much as I like you and respect you, I feel you could be sometimes a little too cavalier, which is not reflective of your personality. So you said, I don't care if it's a life or a potential life, I don't give a fig about it. Well, here's my reaction. My webmaster, Sana Kasam, brilliant woman, chemist. She's becoming a grandmother. Okay? And she emails me that it's the sixth week, sixth week of her daughter's pregnancy, and she's very excited. I hear the heartbeat. I hear the heartbeat. Okay? Now, are you gonna tell me? Her excitement at hearing the heartbeat of her potential grandchild is no different than hearing a clock beat. Well, no, uh, I'm not a,
1: a monster, uh, but I don't and, know what has that uh, to do with my personal uh, feelings uh, on abortion.
2: And most women, uh, most women maybe because they've been brainwashed by male misogynists, but most women find it very anguishing to make the decision about having an abortion so there is seems to be a kind of intuition that something is going on there that's more complicated
1: than taking a clock a beating clock and throwing it against but, the but wall this, this is the frustration norm if you want to have a conversation which we had on the podcast and i substantively agreed with you about if you want to have a conversation about how to message around abortion, then I agree with you that the left is too insensitive. I thought we already talked about that and agreed. If we're asking, you if you're asking me about my, my position on abortion, how I feel about abortion, I don't give a shit. I mean, like, I'm sorry. I'm going to be honest. I don't, I don't, I don't have, I've never been motherly and don't, don't have all those like warm, gushy feelings looking at my, my friends show me their, uh, what do you call it? Uh mammogram print uh, not mammogram, whatever the printout of their you know, black and white, old black and white TV looking kids. I'm like, sonogram. cool, sonogram, yeah, sorry. I'm like, I'm happy for you that this is something that you want. I'm, I'm just not that person, I'm sorry. However, I respect that we have to speak differently about these kinds of things in public. So that's why I told a whole anecdote on the podcast about how I agree that people come in way too hot, presuming that everybody has a radical left understanding of abortion and that cathapolite is not the way I go about communicating in public. What I'm talking about here is making a separate argument about how I think that, frankly, the left and Roe and everybody else has conceded too much with respect to grounding the right in viability. Because even the grandmother, who cares about the 6 beat heartbeat, that's a wanted pregnancy. People feel very differently about unwanted pregnancies. People feel very differently about pregnancies that are a result of rape and incest. People feel very differently about pregnancies that are ectopic and threaten the life of the mother. Like, and that's the conversation that I think the left should be having because there is broad agreement on those kinds of things instead of talking about viability because everybody understands and the Jewish tradition protects the right for a mother to make a decision up until the end of the pregnancy. In part because there is an understanding that all kinds of things can happen that even people who want babies and love babies and have very ethical and sensitive feelings about life and protecting even prenatal life all agree on. But that is that that is especially that is particularly why and I agree with you about all the messaging points. But in terms of strategic, the strategic point of how the left should have been trying to protect these rights more broadly, I think tying it to viability for scientific reasons, for a whole host of reasons. And because to your point, it dodges the fundamental ethical question at play was never a good idea. Um, well, I'm going to you- say no, by, next to Omar, by the way, and bring up Michelle for the next question. But go ahead and please do respond.
2: No, I'm just going to say, in terms of public, what you call messaging, I don't think it's wise to bring in the Jewish religion. You're going to, you're going, didn't you just say the Jewish religion says about abortion?
1: Yeah, well, I brought it up because we had a couple of legal scholars on when the opinion was first released, uh, who were talking about the potential establishment clause case a Jewish woman might bring to a, uh, confront Dobbs, where they say it's within their religious purview to have the right to abortion up until birth and to challenge that kind of religious objection against this Dobbs yeah, yeah. opinion or whatever state, whatever state legislature might come down with banning abortion and to see how the the court then decides between those competing constitutional rights, the, the constitutional, you know, the, the, the right to practice religion and the yeah. And so that, that's why I'm bringing it up as an example, because some, you know, that might be something that's coming down the pike. Not because, again, that's part of messaging. We're having a conversation here on a on a podcast um, about what to take to the public. This isn't me standing on some kind of podium running for somebody's campaign or running somebody else's campaign. But let's get Michelle in here. What do you make of it all?
5: Yeah, I I think for me, I was struggling a little bit listening to the conversation from the podcast where it gets into the stigma section Mm -hmm. and some of the stuff I think you guys are even talking about now. It honestly, it's a little, it's a little unnerving to hear someone speak about the fact that the stigma should be possible. Like is, is an important part of it and that somehow, uh, you know, we are being too callous in the way that we approach it. Like, as, as someone who's, like, worked to try to preserve these rights over time and, like, mm-hmm. as a woman who grew up here, I the stigma was always there. And the whole work that we've all been trying to do is to help get rid of that because, like, we live in a society that objectifies women, relationships, and everything we're taught in our culture, aims sexuality at women. Like, it's painted onto you. But despite the fact that men are half of this equation in every case, there is no part of that stigma or cost or other thing that is necessarily going to them. And I think hearing someone make that argument that the stigma or treating it more from this angle of like the fact that there could be a viable child is really just undoing a lot of the work that women have done to deal with the other side of that, which is what is the economic situation of women? What is the situation of women in the culture like women lost way more jobs during the pandemic what what like why why is that getting aimed in the direction of women and why is that getting asked like i yeah no i i don't think it's a good idea like i i fundamentally
1: disagree with what he's saying well let me let me ask you this maggie like Oh, sorry, Michelle, my apologies. Um, so often the left, including myself, make that rhetorical move that you just made. That obviously this isn't about really respecting the likes because there's this indifferent to, indifference to kids in the adoption system and the foster care system. There's an indifference providing health care for kids and food for kids and adequate education for kids and, you know, whatever the horrible one in five or whatever it is of homeless people or children and all of this kind of stuff. And the, the left says that to kind of like undermine the credibility of the right's actual commitment to life. At the same time, you are seeing now some conservatives, whether performatively or not, invest in some of these programs and try to maybe deflate that argument or maybe in good faith, say that they actually want to take care of kids if they're going to make abortion illegal. And I wonder what you would make of a world... In, in which conservatives in good faith, like let's say that I could snap my fingers and just I could prove to you that everybody really meant it. If we lived in a world in good faith that actually took care of unwanted children, unplanned pregnancies and, and such, and we didn't have like the fact, the arguments about the economic situation of the mother, obviously there's still the bodily autonomy point. Somebody has to carry this thing and push it out and that is no yeah. inconvenient thing. But what what, you know, it seems, it strikes me that the, that is not the first argument the left makes. The argument that the left often, often makes is this economic argument, including myself. I'm not like, you know, I'm trying to attack you for it. But I'm wondering if that starts to prove Norm's point about how we are all, you know, dancing around some discomfort around the, the fact that we know that a lot of people actually are, are, in fact, uncomfortable with terminating pregnancies, depending on the context. First off,
5: I think people's personal religious and or ethical beliefs are something that like no one has ever taken away from them and that was you know in the podcast you guys were specifically discussing he was comparing eugenics to this and i would say like the, the reality around that is like one of them is forcing someone to do one thing or the other with their body and the other one is allowing you to have that choice so I don't, I, I'm like, I don't really buy the argument, I guess, that first off, like, okay, sure, we can talk about kids once they get there, but what about the woman who, I, I don't, how does she have her healthcare now? What if she is not old enough to physically be having a child? What is the situation that is created for her regardless Like we live in a country that doesn't have healthcare, where costs of living are sky high. There's a lot of factors that people are taking into consideration when they decide whether they want kids. I I don't agree that we are someone else's baby factory. I'm sorry. Like that's that's not a that's not an okay argument. So Norm, what do you what do you say to this? Well,
2: first of all, I don't want to come across as callous on this question. As I said when I spoke to you yesterday, uh, I had deep respect for my late mother's moral judgment. And she said, men shouldn't have any say in this. And she didn't say it as a feminist, you know, catechism. It was deeply felt by her. And I have to respect that opinion. However, and I know I'm a bit tiring you about this, Brianna, but forgive me, because I do think it's important. I told you the last book I read in the subject was Katha Pollitt. And she writes as follows. She says, abortion is not evil. It's not even a necessary evil. On the contrary, it's a positive social good that benefits society as a whole. It has no downsides. It's good for everyone. And thus, it's an easy decision. That seems to me, as I write in the book, a positively sick thing to say. And you will never convince anyone outside a very tiny coterie that it's an easy decision to make. And if it's not easy, it's because you've been brainwashed by misogynists That's the, who, who want to deny women the right of sexual pleasure or penalize them for having had sexual pleasure and gotten pregnant. Yes, I am sure there are a lot of creepy men who believe that, but I'm also sure there are a large number of people who sincerely believe that, and with some legitimacy, that there is a life at stake. It's not, except to a very sick, depraved mind, an easy decision to make, nor should it be an easy decision to make. So that, to me, was the point I was trying to address.
1: So, is there somewhere legitimate, in your view, um, Michelle, between? I mean, what, how does how does Catha uh, framing strike you, even if you disagree with Norm saying there should be some level of stigma. Do you think that Katha Pollitt's kind of blase attitude toward it rings true for you? Or or do you think it's kind of, you know, helpful in the context of a movement to get a a right, the right to choose?
5: Um, I don't, you know, I, I don't think it's blase to women who've grown up like, in an American culture where, I mean, I, I don't know what everyone else's situation is on the call, but like, but, you know, I grew up having to listen to Rush Limbaugh in my house. So to say that there isn't like that misogynist angle or that thing being conditioned into people, I think that would be wrong. It is real. Like, that's a very real thing.
1: Yeah, yes. I mean, Norm. What do you think of making the idea that Katha is really, rightly or wrongly, she's expressing a kind of defensive posture because of the overwhelming weight of the stigma that already exists, and that she's kind of psyching herself up and psyching other women up to be like, "Okay, okay, okay, you can do this. It's going to be okay." Not because they're actually blasé about what is what this entails, but because it's kind of necessary to ground yourself and to get your get your liquor up <laughs> or get your whatever the expression is to go in and have a procedure done that is so widely criticized and to which there is so much stigma already attached
5: and that can be like stretched out over multiple days if mm-hmm. you live in a southern state or now you can't even get it done in the you you, you mm-hmm. know what i mean like mm-hmm. it's it is very stigmatized um,
1: what do you say to yeah. that norm
2: Well, I don't live in a Southern state. I live in New York and I can't claim to have broad experience on the topic. I, if you recall, and nobody's obliged to remember, the whole point of my discussion of the abortion, which in itself, the issue is totally peripheral to the book I was writing. Mm -hmm. The whole point was this kind of self-righteous woke liberalism which thinks that they have all the answers and anybody who disagrees with them is backward, primitive, religious, so on. So, you know, the Bill Maher type. And, um, Mm -hmm. I recoil, I recoil at that. I'm not saying every question is, uh, is complicated to the same degree, but I am willing to say that after I read the history of, um, Uh, sterilization and eugenics, it did strike me there was a parallel. Now, you may not agree, and your listener doesn't agree with the parallel, but as I saw it, the parallel was both questions, whether it was sterilizing, quote-unquote, defective women or abortion, both questions had to do with sanctity of life. And it was quite interesting for me, at any rate, to notice that in the sterilization case, the quote-unquote progressives were on the wrong side of history. Those who spoke to the sanctity of even defective life, actually, as far as history's verdict has been rendered, they proved to be right. And in the same case in abortion, there is this issue about the sanctity of life. And I said, in my opinion, which can't obviously be proven, but my opinion is if you look at the long arc of history, it shows that humanity's appreciation of life over time has gradually expanded, not diminished. And it's quite possible. That the life of the fetus will be considered, should humanity survive, which is obviously a question mark, but should it survive? It will be seen in the same light, abortion will be seen the same light, as the counsels of Plato, that we should quietly get rid of all defectives. That was I, my argument. I just can't... That's- It's not so much about abortion per se as it is about the left having to be a little bit less self-righteous and a little bit less sure that it's on the progressive wave of history all the time. Sometimes they are. And guess what? Sometimes they're not.
5: Michelle? Yeah. I, I, first off, I don't think women need to be less sure about their decisions about their bodily autonomy, but like, I definitely tracked with, I, like I lived in North Carolina for a while and I certainly tracked with like, that was one of those states that did the eugenics. It was based on poverty, racism, like so many things that no progressive today would ever like ever be okay with so i think it's really a false equivalency i get that you're saying that the overall objective is life but there is such a difference between a state coming in and taking away the right to give life from poor women and black women and Like, you know, people in those instances that no, like no progressive would ever make that argument, whereas you're making an argument that would connect women who choose not to have a baby at a certain time based on their life and their circumstances as A, needing to be stigmatized, B it that's, that's if it's not already something that was traumatic that occurred because it happened to begin with it, and saying that somehow every every instance where someone has sex and gets pregnant it should, like that becomes that idea of preserving life i just I don't see a more just world coming out of that. I don't see children being treated better. I don't see that being good for anyone. And it certainly turns women into objects.
1: Yeah. So sorry, Norm got cut off again because I haven't upgraded to the paid Zoom, although I thought I just did and it didn't work. So he missed the first half of it. But if I can just summarize for you, Norm, I think you got the, the gist of it. I, I want to drill down on this a little bit with you, Michelle, because while I substantively agree with you, I want to make sure that I'm not wrong. So I agree with you that there is a, a, a qualitative difference between eugenics and abortion. in so far as eugenics is coercive and the state dictating behavior, whereas abortion is people individually making decisions. Now,
5: exactly. can... they can always respect their personal religion. Right. or guilt, or whatever thing they have
1: going. Right. Now, that doesn't ev- evade this question of, well, you're not allowed to do everything you want. Obviously, you can't murder people, blah, 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 because the state has an interest in protecting life, broadly defined. And that's why we get into this conversation of when does it constitute – I would argue we shouldn't be arguing when does it constitute a life, but when does it require constitute a life that the government has a right to or has an interest in protecting? And I would argue that that comes well after – Fifteen weeks, like well after the point at which it's like a fetus. I'm sorry, but that's 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 kind of the question. Go 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 ahead, Michelle.
5: Yeah, I okay. I I hear what you're saying. I guess my question with that is, the government could make an argument that they have a, a desire to have more working population you know, they're concerned mm-hmm. because the economy has collapsed and we don't have the money to have kids in our generation for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they want to make sure that that workforce is coming in and that they're pliable. And, you know, I, I, I sure, you could I mean, like, I could see them making that argument. I'm sure it has some bearing in the decisions they make. I don't feel
1: comfortable with it. Well, and the thing it, that's it, not it being dis- is. yeah, the thing that's not being discussed here is that unlike murder, let's say, where a murderer doesn't have, I would argue, a legitimate interest in murdering someone else, unless there's it's self-defense or something like that. Yeah, that a mo- like a mother, the person who has to carry the child, has lots of legitimate interests in not wanting yeah. to submit to that nine-month ordeal. God bless the yeah. Kardashians and their serious. <laughs> LOL. Well, I kid, yeah. I kid so go ahead <laughs> and
5: and and like if you think about if you think about the way america works right now like in terms of the structure since we didn't win medicare for all and we don't have all of these things the support systems are in place mm-hmm. to make the like that a plausible decision for a lot of people i mean maybe it, it feels almost like a A person's (laughs) awareness of their own economic, financial relationship stability, like, people are making those decisions for a lot of, like, deeply personal reasons. Michelle,
1: what if someone just wants to have an abortion? Because I feel like for the sake of the argument, we have to be able to defend the person who just wants to not have a kid. Right? Because otherwise yeah, you're opening I mean, the door just, to saying I think that the government does have a legitimate interest in protecting da 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 as long no, as they don't have I, a quote-unquote reason. So let's, let's take away reasons. Uh, okay. Brianna Joy Gray is financially solvent. She's of a very advanced age. <laughs> she has no reason. That, she has a supportive family system. There's no reason for me today to quote-unquote justify getting abortion. I don't really want to no. have to buy a two-bedroom, but hey, if push come to shove i can move to the suburbs and do it so what is what what like how do you defend my right to have an abortion if if i so choose like i think that's kind of what we have to be able to defend no
5: yeah well i would say if someone doesn't want a baby that's the number one reason why they shouldn't have a baby like if if you don't want to take (laughs) care of a baby if you don't want to raise a baby is that a good situation for that baby Yeah, but but it's more like a vibe. I don't think it's that simple. No, totally. No, I, I honestly, I do think it's that simple. I don't think most women are making the decision off of something that simple. But, like, I do think not wanting a child is a legitimate reason not to have a child. Or... Not feeling you're in a stable. Yeah, I don't know. I, Look, these are hard questions. Like it's always removed, Michelle. I'm I, asking you. I just you, don't
1: think it is. I, I'm yeah. asking you very hard questions, and it's not fair. And I'm going to yeah. move on. Karen, I'm coming <laughs> to you next. I'm I'm going to hop to some women in the queue. Quake, cool. but I want to say Quake says. I'm on the side of abortion but so many of these responses are avoiding the hard questions they are hard questions and I don't think that any one caller myself or Norm Finkelstein are responsible for answering them but I think I take norm's point that a lot of times the left isn't grappling with what is the less sympathetic of the arguments we're all about of course the society doesn't take care of children of course there's hypocrisy on the right of course there are these cases that involve rape and incest and um, the health of the mother and all of these kind of Uh, very sympathetic eventualities but there's also sometimes just a 36 year old in an overpriced one-bedroom apartment who doesn't feel like downgrading to a (laughs) two-bedroom apartment (laughs) and spending her sofa money on pampers and how do do, how do we and should we defend that that person that hypothetical woman's right (laughs) to choose norm's here smiling i want to give you a chance to weigh in norm
5: I would just still say yes. That's my last thing. Yes, but we, we got
1: like to we we actually do the defense, it. though, Michelle. Look, I appreciate you. You've been no. a real sport. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to move to Karen, but you've been a real sport. I really sure. appreciate you mo- mooting so many of these things with us. And I'm going to give Norm a chance to weigh in and bring Karen up to the stage. Did well, Karen
2: flee? No, here she is. By shutting up on my part, I enabled you to make my argument. Because <laughs> the only argument I made was, now I'm quoting you. These are hard questions. Mm -hmm. And I said, what makes them hard is the other side has legitimate arguments. I don't think your right to use a diaphragm or my right to use a condom is a hard question. I don't think whether you should be able to marry Jared Kushner because you're black and he's white. I don't think that's a hard question. Wait a minute, Norm. Are
1: Jews white? <laughs> I got a lot of trouble on this on the podcast. Are Jews white now? Norm Finkelstein Norm Finkelstein said it. I didn't say it. <laughs> <laughs> you
2: know, uh, I And so you're simply confirming what I said earlier that I don't think it's correct to say, as the dissenters did in Dobbs, that row fits in neatly with Griswold. I think condoms don't raise the kind of questions that abortion does exactly as you said. These are hard questions. And that's my point. And I only had one second point. Mm-hmm. Second point was at risking tedium again. Looking at the long trajectory of what constitutes life, it seems to be expanding, not narrowing. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of possible to predict that our verdict, should humanity survive in in 100 years, our verdict on abortion will be the same verdict that we now cast on Plato in his descriptions about discarding defective children.
1: All right, let's let's hear from you. But first, before we get to you, Karen, really quickly, Quake also says, you know, we need. Oh, sorry, the humanist says we need uh, to create a. Sorry, no, it was Quake. One hard question is about why killing your child is different from killing your unborn child, and that's why I think the example that you raised in the podcast norm, of your mother's acquaintance. On um, like that's I mean how can we paint a more horrific scene who gave birth on a train on the way to a concentration camp making the choice to end her child's life I can't imagine a more compassionate story that points out that yes sometimes I I I, I don't know I, I have a hard time making any kind of moral judgment of a woman
3: who after makes that decision birth, even you after will
1: birth recall. yeah over
2: that's exactly what I wrote yeah of course I said there are some extremist, extremist circumstances where it's simply impossible to contest the right of the woman to an abortion, or even in this case, to kill the live birth child. I recognize that. I recognize it. I think, I can't say with certainty, my mother had an abortion and it was horrible for her. I mean, every time it came up, I think twice, but she was so overwhelmed with guilt agony anguishing but she did it yeah Yeah. she did it yeah you don't give birth to a child in the warsaw ghetto it didn't make sense yeah so i understand that and there seems to be a misunderstanding about what i said Mm -hmm. i take an extreme position i believe in a woman's right to choose from conception to live birth i can't see how you can give over that right to the state because nobody knows where life begins and if nobody knows then i don't see why
1: a state would necessarily be a more responsible but, agent but, but than a woman is the reason because nobody knows when life begins because in the example that you just gave we all i think accept that a born child <laughs> is alive that's guess, that was my point to oh, you totally i almost i don't like this question of when life begins because it seems to me largely irrelevant Even if you accept the the potential of life, the question is weighting that life potential of life against the negative consequences for the mother, whether they be superficial consequences like me saying I don't want to have to move to the suburbs to afford a big enough apartment or more substantive consequences like having an ectopic pregnancy, having to go through the physical labor of birth, which always puts the life of the mother at risk even under the best circumstances, um, or... Having to take care of a child for the next eighteen years slash to the rest of its its I guess of your life whoever expires first. But let's get let's get Karen in the mix.
6: Yeah, thank you so much for taking my call. Um, I have so many different thoughts, and I I understand. I think where the professor's coming from, but Michelle is perfectly right about everything she's saying. And so I just wanted to here just give a few thoughts. I am a person who has given birth. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would love it if you ever had a chance to find enough people to have a, a, an episode who, of, of people who've given birth, mm-hmm. um, and discuss this issue. Cause I think the perspective is often different. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, um, I wanted to point out there's a, there's a, there's a book by a writer, um, Liz Lenz, maybe some people have heard of her L Y Z, um, L E N Z. And it's called belabored. A Vindication of the Rights of Pregnant Women. And she wrote this book, uh, like, in the, in the introduction, she acknowledges she should have said person as opposed to um, woman. Like, this was published a couple years ago, you know, but she, she makes that acknowledgement that, you know, not, she didn't mean just women, she means all people with uteruses. But, um, you know, it's a, it's a book that's about her experiences. Um, like, she grew up as a conservative Christian and married a conservative Christian man and became a mother and all this other stuff. But then, you know, uh, started to realize that her life had taken a wrong turn or whatever. Um, you know, and she now is a single mom and, and a writer, but, um, in the book she talks about like the symbiotic relationship between that fetus and you, you know, like that fetus does not exist without you mm-hmm. up until a certain point. And so, at any point, if somebody's discussing the fetus as a life, like, keep in mind it doesn't happen <laughs> unless that mom stays alive and well and healthy mm-hmm. as well. You know, and that – so then I guess that's just something that people need to always constantly remember and say. And I think most people do know that, but it's like in, – in, that, that it's it's not a separate being. It's joined to the person birthing it until – a certain point like
1: <laughs> well that's, that's that's why i would argue that's how i think of viability i don't think that yeah. road frames viability that way but i do think the better viability argument is that if you're weight if you're weighting the relative interests of a mother and child then the fact that the mother the child cannot exist without the mother really puts the child's interest in the back seat Right. Yeah. Like, it, it is not autonomous. It, it, it's hard to say that it has all of these interests when it can't do anything without the mother. It's kind of like the biological version of a parent saying, I brought you into this world, I can take you out. I think there's something more than just a threat, yeah. <laughs> a, a threat of a certain kind of parent in there. might um, yeah, go ahead. My understanding of
6: old, uh, older, and for the professor probably knows this. Some older abortion laws that used to be on the books, like in my state, my understanding is that I don't know in the 19th century that it wasn't an abortion until after the quickening.
3: Mm-hmm. You know, and the
6: quickening is an old-fashioned term for people don't know <laughs> for when you actually, as a mother, notice that hell, hey, there's something inside me. You know? mm-hmm. like, there's something moving. Mm-hmm. Like that is the quickening, and up until that point, you know. Women, people with uteruses, didn't always even know they were pregnant. It's like mm-hmm. that could have been, I don't know, you know, indigestion or mm-hmm. that, you know, or or whatever. You know, your your menses stopped for a time. You don't know why. Now it's back. Mm-hmm. Um, but so it's it's only in modern times, really, that we've been able to identify and look inside and see that there's something moving inside there. But so maybe the professor can talk about these older laws. But it used to be that it was all a relative. It was, it was the woman's, the mother's, like, subjective experience of the baby that determined whether it was a life or not. And I think that's an important thing that should still exist, that it's, you are the carrier of this being. It's your subjective experience on whether it's there, you know. Um, I don't know, something to think about. But um, a couple of other thoughts that I've had sure. is um, that I, I haven't seen people take that argument. you know, recognizing what, um, professor Finkelstein keeps saying about, okay, people who are pro life slash anti-choice, they truly believe that you're, that it's a baby, no matter what, you know, like my conservative relatives, I think in their heads, it's a baby, you know, even if it's six weeks, Mm -hmm. it's no bigger than a thumbnail or whatever. Um, so if you take that, take them at their word, and say, oh, well, you're pro-life, I would love to hear, and you you, you suggested earlier that you, you've heard some conservatives take this argument, but I haven't heard it myself. <laughs> um, I would love to hear people put them in a corner and say, oh, you're pro-life. Oh, well, then you must be for free prenatal care. Oh, you must be for pre, uh, you know, free postnatal care and pediatric care, right?
3: Mm-hmm.
6: Mm-hmm. Um, oh, you must really be for child care, universal child care. That's great. Mm-hmm. I would love to hear them I would, I want more conservatives put in a corner in that respect.
1: Well, th- this I is want- what I'm concerned about. Actually, Karen, that is that some of them are taking the bait, taking the bait.
6: I haven't heard it yet in this really? moment.
1: It was, okay. I think Ted Cruz had something like that. a bunch of them have come mm-hmm. forward with like, they're not what we would, how we would design them. They're means mm-hmm. tested and they, they do things like, Oh, the money comes from the back end of your social security and you'll be going to oh, be old wow. and poor, but at least you'll have money for the kids. It's a bunch of dumb shit, right? Like they're doing it poorly and regressively, mm-hmm. but some of them have started to try to at least performatively offer those kinds of things. And my like biggest fear Is a world where the right realizes that these lefty vulnerabilities on interventionism, on skepticism about the pharmaceutical industry and the way that it's genuinely exploitative, even if you are pro-vaccine, et cetera, that they realize that they can simply offer a little bit in terms of social support, actually outflank the left because the left certainly isn't advocating for you. I mean, you know, Biden isn't, out here stumping for universal child care in any meaningful way he's letting joe manchin set his entire agenda so that they could actually flip and very easily leave the left with no moral high ground and no substantive policy high ground either now that we're not, we're not there yet but i just in in the in the potential that we get to that kind of a place i want to make sure our arguments stand without relying on the hypocrisy of the right especially to get to norm's point about whether the long arc of justice and our understanding of what life means and what ethics are 100 years from now we're not going to be able to argue oh we were right on just like we're not right on eugenics just because the right was on the other side of it you know i want to be able to say that i have a good defensive abortion rights without just saying well republicans want the opposite and they're hypocrites.
6: Well, no, I I agree. I guess in my head that you start with that, but then you switch to the libertarian argument of why would you want a state to coerce you into bringing forth a life? And to me, that's to me, isn't that doesn't that seem like it should be a slam dunk to most (laughs) like, you know, the argument of since we don't know, it's exactly everything you've been saying. Um, since we don't know when life actually begins, you know, if you truly believe in life, okay, you must be for all these great things. But, you know, if you're not, then since we don't know exactly when life begins, um, you got to go with the bodily autonomy of the carrier of that being. But
1: Karen, I can say I since don't I don't know where life begins, shouldn't I have a maximalist approach and protect the most vulnerable but then people back on back the your- planet?
6: Everything you were saying before, because you said it during the podcast. I didn't, didn't get mm-hmm. through the whole podcast, but at mm-hmm. the beginning, then you go back to, um, "Oh, well, you know, that means you're anti-war. Oh, that means you're anti-death penalty. You know, like, oh, that means you're anti-cops killing um, random people because they have brown skin. Great, you know, like, do you know what I mean? Like, you were you were perfectly right during the podcast saying that." they don't it's so there's no um there's no consistency really um and i think you can come up with all the arguments that go in the other direction but, o- about- but
1: outside of the hypocrisy point outside of the moral relativism of it all yeah can't we we're all friends here we're all leftists, and we all want women to have the right to choose largely unabridged, if not completely unabridged. Norm and I are sitting here saying we completely understand and respect even this extremist instance of someone committing uh, fratricide, whatever you call it, when you kill your, you know, killing the baby because of the unconscionable circumstances the woman is about to enter into in a death camp. In fratricide. Frat Sorry? Infanticide. Right. Sorry. So, you know, all of that being said, you know, if we can't kind of be sort of honest with each other in this space, I don't know. I think that this is kind of exposing Norm's point without arguing all of these other things about the hypocrisy of the right and how this you' abor- not having a right to abortions and pregnancy has been used to control women for generations. All of this stuff can be true and it could, could hypothetically, I'm not saying this is my belief, but it could hypothetically also be true that it is immoral that time will say it's unethical for a society not to want to protect the potential for life the most vulnerable creature that exists even in its proto form and that given all the ambiguity and us not really knowing and having a lot of conflicting feelings about this what the state should do is every time you get pregnant you get free food and free beautiful housing and you're set up in a mansion and have you know handsome Greek men fanning you and feeding you grapes or whatever and you get a million dollars in the bank once you give birth to the child and the child gets to go to college for free you know you can imagine the most ethical version of forced birth but you've got to be able to make the case why we should have the right to choose as opposed to the most, most ethical version of forced birth
6: because birthing people can die you um, suppose that's a, a simple enough answer it's like you are putting your body at risk there are additional mm-hmm. um all kinds of repercussions things that happen after you've given birth Don't mm-hmm. get into details but some of you know people need to talk about <laughs> the details because a lot of these
1: women and a lot of these men i gotta say are like oh i really want to be a father and then when you start talking about sneezing a little bit every time you laugh or pee they backtrack real quick but look (laughs) (laughs) I want want you to so so go ahead Karen and then I want Warren. oh no 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 those are my
6: main those are I think most of my main points oh oh but back to life though if they do argue that oh the potential for life is that sacred does everybody remember Monty Python um every sperm
1: is sacred do you know what I'm saying like Uh carry
6: it to that level it's like oh well then men shouldn't be spilling their seed on the ground, as in, you know, in, in the Hebrew Bible and all that stuff. You know? I, I <laughs> like... support it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think there are all kinds of arguments we can make, but yet, to profess- the professor's point, those people who truly believe that you're killing a baby, I don't know what to say. Like, my aunt, my in-laws, whoever, like, saying, okay, you know, like, if that's truly what they believe, some of them do believe it in good faith. Yeah. So, that's it.
1: Thank, thank you, Karen. Norm? Well, I'm, I'm still
2: very distressed by your point that if there's dependency of the fetus or the being on their mother, then all things being equal, the mother should have the right to kill the fetus. Um, because I had a Jewish mother, and so even at this right age, I'm still dependent upon her. <laughs>
3: right
6: to
2: kill but the right to make sure the mother's the mother's um she may yet come back from her grave and throttle me and, <laughs> and i would say she had every right to because i'm so dependent on her uh, i'll just make the point um that um i remember way back when it's already a good 40 50 years ago there were two outstanding members of the anti-war movement, um, Philip Berrigan and Daniel Berrigan. And they were priests. They, they eventually left the days, but they were very active against the war in Vietnam, genuinely heroic. Um, and um, I remember I would attend their lectures, and they were very anti-abortion, mm. uh, probably from their religious background. And it was They made a point, they made a point of saying, this is horrible abortion. And the audience would get very uncomfortable, like this is not what you're supposed to be saying if you're anti-war and if you're on the left and so on and so forth. And I mention it because nobody in his or her right mind could possibly doubt the sincerity, the Authenticity, commitment to life of the Berrigan brothers, and the willingness on their part uh, to make the sacrifices. Why I bring it up is because it's very easy to caricature, even though I think there is a large element of truth or an element of truth, to those who oppose abortion as being these Mephistophel, Mephistophelian. Misogynist uh, fanatics it's easy to do that, um, but I think they're also it's a kind it's not that it's not true, but it's a kind of straw man because it's an unwillingness to confront the tough issue. so I'll give you, in my opinion, a tough way of putting it,
3: mm.
2: which has always kind of torn me apart, as you know. John Brown was a deeply religious man. Every every biography of him will, you know, whether you read Du Bois and Brown, whether you read Douglas and Brown, everybody will acknowledge that he felt he was acting out God's word. He was a religious fanatic of the highest intensity. Okay. Mm. And in the course of his Religious fanaticism, his deeply held conviction that slavery was wrong. He committed what, by terrestrial earthly standards, constitutes murder. Mm-hmm. At Osawatomi, he took some white slaveholders hostage and killed them. Okay? So, Sometimes at night, in the darkness of my room, I puzzle, and of course, John Brown was hung, okay, after Harper's Ferry, after the uprising. Very strangely, very strangely, it shows you how history flips so quickly already during the Civil War, just a few years later. The hymn of the Union Army is "John Brown's body is a moldering." He was hung, mm-hmm. okay, for a So now I ask myself the question: Those abortion fanatics, like Brown, religious fanatic, who kill abortion doctors, what will be the verdict on them? Will it be the same thing as with John Brown? I'm really unclear on that. And I'm willing to acknowledge I'm unclear. Now I think even you and I like the way you argue because you did learn something good in law school. You make very you make the, the strong case for the other side, and that's what you should be doing, uh, not using straw men or easy targets. Uh, I think it's very hard to demonstrate that that analogy is wrong. That that analogy is wrong. They're both religious fanatics, both acting out of what they think is God's word, and both certain that this particular institution, whether it be called slavery or whether it be called the right to abortion, that it violates the sanctity of human life, and therefore you have the right even to kill in order to Remove that iniquity from our land, that to me is the tough question.
1: Is it a tough question for you, Karen, and then I'm gonna move on to grace
6: uh, well I don't know that is a good I don't know <laughs> yeah and that's that's <laughs> this, fine this Karen. Never, this was never my favorite like policy yeah <laughs> until until it became. You know an issue of uh, like it, until it was taken away i mean I'm sorry, you know, like it just I had so many other policies I cared about more until just now, you know mm-hmm. until which i I know a lot of people who've been out there fighting the fight, like Michelle, you know they're like they're probably you know in their heads like, well, why did you ever take this for granted and i I don't know, I just assumed i guess I always felt like it was i mean up until a couple of years ago, I felt it was settled. And I, I always felt it needed to always exist. The right always needed to exist. But yet at the same time, I understand like my conservative relatives who, again, think that it's a baby and think that it's a life, just like prof- the professor's saying, I understand their perspective. I just don't, I don't think it's a, it's just such a hard, I don't know. It's just so hard.
1: Well, this what, and and, and this is why I think the prof- <laughs> professor Finkelstein is making such a good point. It's because one option in the world of ambiguity, if you still, if the ambiguity to you doesn't mean let's ban abortion, if the, ambigu- the ambiguity and the alternative could mean let's just be honest. Let's let's make sure that people are, and this is just an argument. I'm not saying this is how I feel, but there's a tape that says, let's make sure, and this is, I think, what he's saying about stigma. Let's make sure that people have really considered it, that it is, you know, Maybe it is okay, circumstantially, to fully kill a baby if it's a circumstance where you think the baby is going to die and have a torturous existence and suffer unbearably because you're heading into a concentration camp. You know, maybe it is completely legitimate if you're, you know, you are a rape victim or a victim of incest or, you know, your pregnancy is going to kill you. Maybe it is completely legitimate if you're just 18 and you really wanted to go to college and you see your whole life... And your financial and romantic and it, uh, kind of personhood responsibility, you know, like whatever line you think makes moral sense to you, whether it's about what the the pregnant person is doing, or whether it's about the stage of the fetus is, and whether you think, well, it's just a zygote. Who really cares? Um, whatever the litmus test is for us to be kind of honest about the fact that we are all weighing those things when we make the decision instead of taking the, Katha, the Kathapala approach and says, and, and pretending like it's a, a non-issue. And for some people it is going to be a non-issue. And to be honest, for some people, killing folks is a non-issue, not in self-defense. and not complaining murder <laughs> with a kind of flippant you know, pregnancy ending person. But, you know, maybe maybe the middle ground is not banning abortion, But treating it with a certain, like acknowledging a certain level of ambiguity and a certain level of hesitation that gives it more moral weight so that history will judge us more fairly. And we have kind of maximalized outcomes of people who would maybe, people who would have a baby if they had social support do get social support instead of feeling like the only way out is an abortion. And people who just don't want to have an abortion, because again, I'm really loving my apartment right now. And sometimes you just don't want to have a baby. You know, maybe there's a different calculus that comes in at play because of the social attitude and maybe that's a good thing, but maybe it's not a good thing because of the stigma that already exists and we shouldn't be putting fuel in that fire. I don't know either, Karen. Maybe Grace can answer this for us all. I recall Grace as being a very thoughtful interlocutor. So let's get her in the chat. Where did she go? Oh, there you are. Thank you so much, Karen. Again, keep the faith. Grace, you're up at bat. Nothing but hard questions here tonight. What say you? Can you unmute yourself first, Grace? If I caught you off guard and you're in the middle of something, get back oh there you go. Hey.
7: It keeps on un- <laughs> Is it there? Okay. You're there. We can hear you. Huh. Hey, sorry. I may have taken a phone call while I was waiting. I'm sorry. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> Um, but, um, anyway, it's been so long and I wanted to thank you for bringing Matthew Ho on the podcast first off. Yeah, of um, course. That was like, I really, really enjoyed it, that episode. Um, but yeah, I have big feelings about this one mm-hmm. today. Um, I, I just, I really think the question of life is so irrelevant to this to this question. And mm. that, like, I feel like that framing is dangerous. And quite frankly, you know, when you're talking about like they're, what they're coming for next is go- they're going to try to say that, um, you know, once, once fetal personhood is on the table, what's gone from like a horrific situation is about to get way worse. Um, because then that's going to, you know, set them up to treat anything that happens, um, to be like, you know, truly like murder. Mm -hmm. Um, and I actually was in, um, I I ended up being in Missouri when Roe fell, which was an unfortunate place to be. Mm. (laughs) Um, and, but I had the night before I had stayed in St. Louis and, um, I walked out of my hotel in the morning and I was like, well, I'm right by this arch. I'll go look at it or whatever. Um, and so, and so, but I turned around and I'm like, Oh, what's this building? And it was a court. So oh, I was like, you know, just doing a refresher on the Dred Scott decision, which, you know, they'll say is the worst Supreme court case ever. But they said what really comes to mind to me in this case, which is that, um, you know, they, the, I guess you 're the lawyer but but I guess they were essentially saying like the Constitution was never intended to protect you and i mean that, that's kind of,
3: <laughs> yeah go ahead i 'm sorry,
7: and that's what and that 's what i think and that 's where I think we are now, and I think that that 's what Alito is saying when he 's saying that that i mean when they 're talking about history, I mean, yeah, the Constitution was never intended to protect people with uteruses
1: i mean I think that 's in some ways. Norm, Norm's point, right? Right. That there isn't a, and that is okay. So that is what it is. So then, what do you make of outside of a constitutional framework? The case that has to be made now, pretty much from scratch, is for why this right should exist. And I have an interview that I recorded earlier today with Vijay Prashad, who I know you guys have been really excited to have on the podcast for a long time, where I ask him some of these questions, you know, about how uh, these some of these very Catholic. South American countries that have much more conservative religious traditions have managed to have more abortion rights than the United States of America, despite all of the religiosity of the culture, and despite not having a quote-unquote constitutional right to it? What are the arguments that are being made that are so persuasive? What should we argue if we have an opportunity in this moment to make a better case than perhaps was made in Roe? Should we fall back on those same kinds of arguments, which have obviously not been able to hold the line for more than 50 years.
7: Well, I mean, I, I definitely thought, um, you know, it was actually really weird. I went back and listened to, we did a podcast episode, I guess maybe in June of last year, um, called rut row where we were, you know, just seeing what was coming <laughs> down the pipe, Um, and, um, you know, we and I was like, oh, well, this seems like a, this privacy argument seems a little flimsy. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, to me, the argument is that, you know, people who carry children are people. I, I like I and yeah, like, you know, and what you were saying before, this can't exist um, without its uh, um to use a conservative term, host body, mm. um, <laughs> which, you know, I mean, and, that, and that's just the end of it, you know, um, and I do think that, you know, Norm was talking about this book. I do think that pleasure does play into this. Um, maybe I'm coming from my pleasure podcast standpoint, but, um, you know, um, we can have orgasms, you know, that are non, um, not for procreation. Mm-hmm. You know? And I think that, that, and I think that that's like a distinct difference that, um, is, you know, one of the big problems that plays into the misogyny of it all. Um, and so I think that, you know, once we start to say that you have, a, it's just forced birth that, I mean, end of story, the idea that it's like a private matter, even just saying that honestly is stigmatizing to me. Um, because I do know, um, like privacy using, you know, like that it's, Mm. you know, I mean, it's so stigmatized that it is so private, even after this, you know, while I was, while I was on my trip, I mean, people start just, you know, disclosing their abortions to me left and right. And now we're having more discussions about it, I feel like, but also I've asked some of my, um you know, my older family members, oh, did you have this experience where everyone just was suddenly talking about their abortions because that's what it was for me. And they were like, Mm. no. Mm. And it's like, if you don't know someone who has had an abortion, then somebody is not telling you they had an abortion. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that it is, it's so stigmatized to the point of, um, yeah, and I think the moral stigma argument is like so individualistic. And this is where Where, if anything, there should be a collective stigma about the fact that the social conditions of capitalism that underpin, um, you know, our society are necessitating abortions that perhaps don't need to be happening. I mean, that's another conversation if you want to have that. Um, But that's
1: difficult, Grace, because some people don't even there. You know, there are people on the left who don't even want to really give quarter to the argument that some people are having abortions that they don't really want, but for poverty, even like, even this idea that like every person who gets an abortion, isn't like a happy strident feminist who simply just, you know, do, do, do you know what I'm saying? Like even, even saying the, the phrase that uh, she didn't really want to do it, but you know, she couldn't afford it right now, or she needed to get through college or something. And some, in some lefty liberal feminist circles is considered to be almost an admission that's too far toward acknowledging that there is this moral ambiguity or, you know, something other than a complete indifference about what it is that's inside of a person, a pregnant person.
7: I think that the hesitation there is, um, is really that, you know, you, you, you don't need to explain yourself. And I think that that's where that comes back to is that if you, if you try to say, okay, well, I have to justify this to, to whoever, I, you know, it's really nobody else's business either, which way, um, then, you know, do you, Oh, do you have a good enough reason to have an abortion other than, you know, I think it was Michelle, right. Who was mm-hmm. saying, you know, because I don't want to have a baby and, mm-hmm. and abortion has existed through all of time. You know, I mean, yeah, I mean, history. If Alita wants to talk about history, I mean, abortion has always, you know, always existed, and people um, people come up with other ways to have abortion, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, yeah, it's like literally just a part of reproductive of the reproductive life of you know of people who can have kids. Um, so
1: Norm, what do you, what do you make of that? You know, if the left sticks with. Uh, you should be able to have an abortion because you don't want to have a baby and there's no more justification that's um, necessary. Well, maybe I should also put to you... Um, oh, no. Go ahead, go ahead. Norm. You make an argument
2: like that. As you know, and as you have anticipated, if you were to have a child, the first few years are quite murderous. <laughs> and there are a lot of times where you regret that you had a child would like to strangle the child <laughs> um and if you make the, the that kind of argument it's hard to see why you shouldn't be justified in throttling that little baby and throwing it out the window now you might say well it's different because it's a child okay well that's the whole issue when well, do you, well, when, when is it outside of your
7: body just give it to somebody else i don't think you should have to keep a kid that you don't want at any age
1: well, but Grace, what about if it's let's say a week before? Why, I'm
2: why, due? Why, why, why then were so so many uh, quote unquote liberals? Well, they were liberals, both liberals. Why were they so outraged at uh, Amy Coleman Barrett's question about the availability a place of, of dropping off a child? So I heard, I heard. You know, during the oral argument, she asked, "Can you tell us about the availability to drop off?" a child that is born, but you don't want it. And people said, oh, well, that doesn't take into account. You know, a woman doesn't, once she's gone through nine months and given birth, she doesn't want to give it away. And everybody was so outraged at what seemed to me a perfectly sensible question. I'm not saying it's the I, answer, I
7: that-
2: but, certainly, but certainly the availability of dropping off a child, which you don't want, and having the option of the child being adopted that same seemed to me a perfectly legitimate question. Why are people outraged at a question like that?
7: My understanding Grace? is that the outrage about a question like that is because there is an adoption industry that's basically selling children to rich people, um, <laughs> and that that was the I, to me that was where I thought that that line of concern was. But
1: but but also, Grace, them. the bodily autonomy point—that it's one thing to say someone who chose to have a baby. And then if they were crazy and, f- and thinking they wanted to throw it out the window give it up for adoption and someone who fully does not want to have a baby and knows that immediately and that is forced through an unwanted pregnancy and to take on all of the health risks and the burden of having this bowling ball hanging off the front of you for all of this time um and the life consequence you know when you didn't want the thing to begin with right those are two different scenarios. One, one person who's like, "Oh, the terrible twos are horrible. Let's get rid of this kid," but who wanted it in the first instance and agreed to not, the pregnancy.
3: Either,
2: in this instance, I'm not, I'm not arguing that the two are the same. Mm. I'm, I'm talking about this kind of indignation. Amy Barrett, I think she has six kids, correct? And several sure. of them, uh, two of them are adopted. They're Haitian kids who she adopted. Okay? Mm-hmm. So Red flag. it seemed to me a perfectly legitimate question to talk about the uh, the adoption option. Not saying it answers the question, but just the adoption option. And I, see, I saw so much venom and so much... Um, it's more, you know, so much venom at her even asking a question like that. I don't see, you, see, you refer to the adoption industry. Well, frankly, everything in our society is an industry. Uh, it's very hard to name anything any longer that hasn't been commodified. The number of inches of leg room you get in an airplane is now industry, you know. So I don't think that really addresses the question. There are many kids who are adopted. Most of my female friends, most adopted. So to just say, well, they were outraged at the adoption industry, I think that's an evasion. It's an evasion of, she was asking, as a mother of six kids, having adopted two kids, is this an option we can think about and talk about? Why can't we? Wait a minute, Norm.
1: Wait you, a minute Grace.
2: Abram, the- you remember what Abram X. Kendi said when uh, Amy Comed Barrett said it, that she's probably a racist because she adopted
1: two black kids. I mean, it was like... Okay, so, so let's, let's get to this. So I think the real issue, frankly, is not that it's not, I don't even think the critique was so much about the adoption industry. It was that People aren't adopting kids. Like it's a fiction that there's a house house for every adopted kid as evidenced by our chock full foster care system. People who kids are getting lost in the foster care system. And there is a preference for certain kind of kids that is reflects all of the biases and vagaries of our society. So there are kids who are never going to get adopted either because they are not a desirable racial group because they have some kind of, um, you know, physical disability, mental disability, just aren't cute, <laughs> et cetera. And we are like kind of lying to ourselves to pretend that that is a thing. Moreover, that there is a huge waiting list and we don't have the infrastructure at present to deal with the backlog of children. That's a terrible way to put it, but you know, the, the overwhelming number of children who aren't, you know, being taken care of at present, which is evidenced in part by the fact that Amy Comey Barrett went to Haiti. Like so many people do because local adoptions are just so difficult. Because, you know, it's difficult. It's difficult to find, you know, good white people. You know, there's a whole there's a whole lot of stuff that's going on. Moreover, I don't think... You don't, while, go, to, you don't go to Haiti to get a white child. No, <laughs> I, but, but that's what I'm getting to this next point, this racial point. And I see Brian in the chat. Shout out Brian, who's from a transracial adoption. There are plenty of adoptees who will tell you that while it is... They love their parents and they are happy that they are adopted there are some significant issues that many adoptive pre- parents are not prepared to engage with that leads to a really torturous environment for many adoptive kids. And that could be a whole other episode. That's, that's yeah, not to Brianna, say people shouldn't adopt kids across races and all of that stuff. That's just to say, let's not pretend like it's like not, a, like not a thing. Brianna, yeah. six nine out of
2: every eight kids nowadays are on some form of antidepressant it's even not wonderful being raised in your natural home. So to say that, you know, uh, adopted kids, you yeah, know, they have issues. I know because I've seen it. I see that they have issues. But then to use that as an argument to, to uh, uh, diminish a legitimate concern,
1: I felt. But, by, but that's not the know, argument. The, no. the, the argument we should be taking on right now, Norm. I'm just saying that that's a, that's a thing that people are raising. But the the main issue that I think is, what really puts Amy Comey Barrett's comments under the microscope is the fact that she is saying hypothetically we could live in a world where we take care of these kids, pointing to the evidence of her personal adoptions as examples that she's acting in good faith, which she knows perfectly well that one she didn't have a, a like a, a local adoption or whatever you call it domestic adoption, and two that she's, she's an anomaly. That's like me sitting here and saying, oh, all black people, no, there's no, there's no problem with the black community and, and educational attainment because I went to Harvard. That's just something that Charlie Kirk has literally said in this asinine, right? Okay, great for you, Amy Comey Barrett, that you, you are a more moral person than 99% of people who want biological o- offspring and you adopted kids. Fabulous. Like you're a great person, maybe even <laughs> Noah Feldman seems to think so. But that doesn't mean that your personal life is a blueprint for the entire country because you are not a legislator and you can't fix the problems with our adoption system and our, and our, um, what do you call it? Foster care system.
7: And if somebody wants to have a discussion about whether or not, you know, with how her religious views play into the decisions that she makes about her reproduction or about adoption, then she's more than welcome to make her decisions based on those things. The problem mm-hmm you know i mean the whole problem is when you know she's trying to make her belief system uh, apply to to all of us I, yeah. I have
2: to tell you with all due respect i don't you're you in his grace mm-hmm. is this grace who's speaking with me? yes no. yes i really have you know i came from a fanatically atheist home i mean to the point that you couldn't mention god and you know it's was a four letter word in my home um, but I really have a problem with these expressions like, what's her religious view? Oh, well, yeah, she's entitled to her, but she doesn't have the right to impose it on us. But I don't think that secularism is such a terrific worldview. I think secularism is very selfish, very narcissistic, very egotistical. It's mostly about navel gazing. If you have any question, go listen to Bill Maher on an occasional night. Well, that's that's not no, no, no. Why? Why are we so contemptuous, always dripping with contempt, her religious view, as oh. if our secular view, if you look at it factually, I'm not talking about the distant past. But if you look at it factually, in the twentieth century, whether it be a Hitler or a Stalin or a uh, Henry Kissinger, most of the mass deaths in the twentieth century were not inflicted by religious zealots. It was they were inflicted by secular bureaucratic God. I won't say hating, but certainly. God questioning and more in God doubting individuals. I just don't see it. I have many Muslim friends, you know, and I have to say the, the degree of respect, the respect they have for their parents, for their elders. I wish, I wish I saw it in secular kids. And I'll tell you another thing, Brianna, I've had because I've taught mostly at public institutions, I've had many African-American young men. And I will tell you without any question, the most respectful kids in the class have always been the African-American young men. And 99% of the reason is they went to church growing up. They have much more manners, they're much more respectful. The way some of these secular kids talk to me, you know, I'd like to take out, you know, thr- uh, 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 well, you get the idea. So I'm not, I don't, I don't, I don't go for this kind of dripping contempt for those well, religious people and their ideas. No, no, How about no, I, these secular people and our ideas? I think a lot of our secular ideas are, frankly, stupid. I listened, the other. I was reading an article the other day from Judith Butler and she she seems to think, I know you're not gonna like what I'm about to say now, but it's coming at the end of the program so you can pull the plug whenever you want. She seems to think that men have babies. Well, guess what, Judith? You might think you're a philosopher. I don't think you are, but you might think you're a philosopher. But if you think men have babies, well, frankly, that's as nutty, as climate change denial. In fact, that's even more irrational and more nutty than climate change denial. So don't be so on your high horse with your secularism, always looking down on those religious people with their religious beliefs. I think 90% of what's being said now by woke people is more crackpot than anything I
1: hear from most religious people. Okay, so Norm, you've said a lot.
7: That's a lot.
1: Norm, first, let's just take on I don't I I personally and neither has Grace, I don't mm-hmm. think said anything that made broad characterizations of people of any religious group in a dismissive or derogatory way or generalized their beliefs. We on the left have a long tradition of religious leftists from Martin Luther King on back. And I think that there is also a really healthy tradition of secular humanism. That's how I was raised. And I stress this humanism part of secular humanism. I'm enthusiastic to live not too far from a universalist church that my mom attended when she was in college at Howard University. And as soon as they have in-person meetings again, hope to avail myself of those opportunities. I also think that although there are some superficial sometimes substantive, but sometimes superficial nods toward respectfulness coming from various communities and traditions, perhaps attributed to a kind of religious, religiosity or other kinds of cultural conservatism, those play out in really unpredictable ways. And I can point to many people who are very polite and say, you know, have that kind of Southern bless your heart attitude about things, but who are, you know, stealing from their congressional members. My aunt's priest was hauled off to jail a few years ago. There was just a story of the someone robbing the church and somebody asked the question, why were they able to collect a million dollars worth of jewelry off the pastor in the first place and on and on and on. So I think that people are people, there's good people and bad people who are secular and, and religious alike. But,
7: but I agree. May but I, may I say that like this, my, I mean, the reason why I was in Missouri or the reason why I grew up in evangelical churches And watched the movement that has led to this moment being built in the church pews, which is the same one that told me that if I wore a spaghetti strap, that adult men were going to want to have sex with me and that that was going to be my fault. This entire idea of not having bodily autonomy is an experience that I have had sitting and I'm not and I'm not saying this is in every religious institution, in evangelical churches, specifically Southern Baptist churches, which now we know have a scandal that just came out with them, very similar to what happened in the Catholic Church, which can where I mean, I mean, I I have friends who are abused by Catholic priests. I mean, it's not yeah. it's to, to, to to be able to segregate the idea of bodily autonomy from the powers of these religious institutions is quite honestly, like very disingenuous. And I'm not saying that there's nobody who's in a religion, you know, that, you know, I mean, there are different people in different groups, but I do know that these powerful institutions have led us to this exact moment and that the you know, misogynistic forces have been built into it from the beginning when you're literally telling people that the whole reason that we're all sinners is because we came out of the womb of women. I mean, that is what is the foundational lesson of the Bible. I mean, and so I don't, I don't think you can separate these things from each other. I,
2: I won't dispute that, but you know what? Look, I'm not going to argue with that because it's probably right. right, right? My credo in life is never quarrel with facts and I, uh, what you say is probably right. So one last- and, yeah. and then I say to you, Jeffrey Epstein, totally secular. Larry Summers, who hung out with Jeffrey Epstein, totally secular. Alan Bill, when I mentioned Larry Summers, president of, president of Harvard University, <laughs> who hung out with Jeffrey Sum, Jeff, Jeffrey, um. Uh, Epstein totally secular. Alan Dershowitz totally secular. Harvard no Law School arguing
7: that rapists Steve, don't exist Steve, in Steve Pinker, culture.
2: Steve Pinker, Steve Pinker, Harvard Psychology Department. Totally right, but Norm Finkelstein also, sure, the sure. entire
1: Catholic Church priest scandal and, uh, you know, it's on and on and on. So like, let, let's just let that die sure. for a second. Can we just let that die? We all agree that there's bad people who are secular and religious. I don't think we really <laughs> have to belabor that point. But the, the- I never the,
2: hear anyone saying those secularists. I never hear anyone saying those hedonistic secularists. Well, because, you have, because, you have because this- but Wait a minute. I
1: mean, wait a minute. But this also was don't a point- But this was a point that I made on the podcast, Norman, you, you didn't see this distinction as relevant, but I still do. I think there's a difference when people are doing things bad in the name of religion versus happen to be like, if some random Catholic person does a random hit and run, I don't attribute it to their Catholicism. If there's a cabal of priests, who knowingly shift people around the world to avoid being charged for molesting boys, I attribute that to the Catholic Church as an institution. And if it's, it's the same here. Some secular person says, in the name of secularism, whatever that means, I'm going to do bad acts, then I would attribute to it to the, to, to the I, fact I, that they're I, being I, secular. But if people are just being bad the way that people are bad I, all the time, then that's a different calculation. I, 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 I can't really, I can't really...
2: I mean, it's an interesting distinction. I just don't see it. So let me ask you the following question, right? You're saying the Catholic Church, it's an institution, and it's different if they're working within an institution rather than as individuals. So I ask myself the following question, and you'll excuse me, I hope I'll ask you in advance, for personalizing it, okay? Mm -hmm. So Alan Dershowitz, he was known as a great civil libertarian. He was a senior-most professor at Harvard Law School. What did his civil libertarianism consist of, okay? He started out his career, if you read the book, The Best Defense, his first book, assuming he wrote it, which is always a question mark. Uh, his first book, he began his career, he defended the secretary who was murdered by two members of the JDO, and he got, them, he got them off. Then he went on to defending pornography then he went on to defending, as you know, Klaus von Bülow, O.J. Simpson, Mike Tyson, um, white, uh, 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 convicted rapists, spousal batterers, and murderers. Okay? That institution, Protected him. That's fine. So, if you uh, expect me to uh, defend uh, Harvard,
1: uh, you you win. Harvard uh, sucks, Norm. Norm, <laughs> you win. Harvard sucks. Down with the institution. Norm, that's not an yeah, argument that's going to win on yeah, me. But, but Norm, yeah, but I really do want to get to this last point because we're at eleven o'clock. Okay, okay a radical, secular institution. Harvard sucks. Burn no. it down. Gotcha. I'm totally with Burn you, Norm. I'm totally with you, Norm. So so we don't have to debate that. And there's many more important things because I'm sorry, Norm, we have to address that you brought up this idea of Jude, with Judith Butler Church. I would also rather not discuss that, but you brought it up. So I can't in good conscience the Judith Butler men, men no. can't give birth point is that what your argument is. Oh, she said, I know what the argument is and here's what I would say in response. I, I don't know how you feel about trans people, Norm, but the reality is that there are people who identify as men who obviously have the, retain the capacity as people who were born, assigned women at birth and born women biologically mm-hmm. have the capacity to give birth. Now, whether you not you will in your personal life, it's a free country, you can continue to refer to those people as women, but they identify as men, and that's mm-hmm. what Judith Butler is arguing when she says men can give birth. Does it happen a lot? No. Is it niche and is it being weaponized politically and brought up more in a disproportionate way to try to make the left look out of touch? Yes. But do those people exist? Yes. And I don't feel like this is a space where I want to diminish the the existence of those people or, or deny. You said you don't argue with the facts. Those are the facts. Okay.
2: I'm going to tell you the facts as I understand it. You are, as I understand a history of science student. Yes. You said that half of the courses you took were in the hard sciences. Yes. I cannot make that claim. However, I have many friends who are physicians. And I have many friends who are in biology. My high school roommate ended up being a biomathematician at NYU. My best friend is a pediatrician. And I've asked him repeatedly. They're very woke. I'm not woke. They're very woke. I asked my friend who's a pediatrician. As you know, the first act of a pediatrician is when the baby is born, you have to what's called assign a sex. Okay? Now, there are two sexes. This is not me speaking. You
1: asked me to speak. Well, that's not even strictly scientifically true, Norm. Okay,
2: I'm going to finish. Okay. There are two sexes there's a male sex, I'm going to finish. Okay. There's a male sex and there's a female sex. And there's this tiny, infinitesimally tiny category called, nowadays they call it intersex. Mm -hmm. Almost statistically an irrelevance. Okay? Now, Judith Butler said that Roe, quote, probably got the sex wrong. You hear what I said? We're not talking about how you interpret the word male or men. She said Roe. Probably got
1: the sex wrong. I don't understand uh, what that means. I don't understand that. What do you mean Roe got the sex wrong? It
2: means that they refer to abortion as a women's sex issue. She does not think it's a women's sex issue. So, speaking as a person who studied science, is it your opinion? that members of the male sex can have children no fine and that's what i'm talking about the idiocy of what's passing for wokeness so stop let's stop talking about the idiocy
1: of religious people what we're saying is completely insane look i don't think that i don't know what judith butler's steel is or what that's in fact the argument that she was making if you say that it is it is but nine 99 times out of 100 when people are going around there is an, an active pogrom going on right now against trans people there's a movie that is blasted all over the place and everyone's talking about called what is a woman that's trying to pretend woman. like there's confusion about what is meant when we talk about trans men being pregnant it's not rocket science nobody is sitting here saying that Trans men, when they decide, you know, when they transition to being men magically manifest, you know, uh, you know, lose their reproductive, like no one's arguing that, you know, trans women magically manifest a uterus and ovaries and have the capacity to give birth. No one, there is not like, people are like, why can't you participate in my delusion? It's not a delusion. No one is asking you to believe that a trans person is a cis person. They're a trans person. They're a trans woman. I that is like, no one's asking you to believe we're, we're any kind of fiction. All, both, all they're saying is that God, trans men. I, I don't know what a
2: cis person
1: is. And, I don't know what any of this talk, this
2: idiotic terminology by the Norm, completely Norm, lunatic left, Norm, I don't know what any of
1: it means. I, I, I don't, don't, I don't, I don't understand. Completely I don't understand why this is so agitating. Because,
3: and because because I don't understand.
1: I I
2: get agitated by the self, the smug self righteousness of
1: the left, with people like AOC. But Norm, can we just keep it to this conversation? I, I don't. I'm not going to sit here and argue on AOC. You and I are having a conversation, and is this something that I've said that is smug or self righteous, or are we just trying to explain terms no, and get I, on the no, same no, page?
2: Brianna, you're right. Okay. I'm not. I'm not, not going to quarrel. When you're right, you're right. Okay. I was talking about. from the beginning, the refusal to acknowledge that there may be legitimacy to the other side of this argument and this constant attempt to ridicule the other side as being either misogynistic or religiously primitive or backward. And I said as part of my argument that I think the so-called secular left is saying things which are as lunatic as any climate change denier or any so-called religious fanatic. And it's also my opinion that a lot of the crimes of the 20th century or most of them were overwhelmingly committed by secularists And while we focus on the religious side of the Catholic church scandal or this or that other sexual scandal, I didn't see anyone focusing on the secular side of the Jeffrey Epstein scandal. There it's always treated as some individual issue. No, it really isn't an individual. It may be.
1: I, I, I don't want to belabor at this point. We're not going to agree on this. I've made the case that the the Catholic Church and the Vatican is a multi billion dollar institution that worked as an institution to protect priests who were molesting kids. I don't think you know there is definitely a cabal of people working. I don't know what the deal is with those Jeffrey Epstein, and there's definitely a lot of pedophile pedophiles protecting each other. But I personally do not believe, and I have not heard, I could be wrong, that they're doing so in the name of secularism or with the protection of some kind of secular institution. If there is a secular institution like Harvard, like the government, I support bringing it down because it's an institution that's doing the bad thing. Just like the Catholic church, not random Catholics. I'm not mad at random Catholics for what these priests were doing, unless they were participating. But it's the church as an institution that I'm critiquing. I don't have a a problem with Catholics. I'm certainly – there are a whole bunch of people who want to attribute – you just listed off a bunch of people as secular that also happen to be culturally Jewish, and there are a lot of people who who have a lot of theories about that that are very anti-Semitic in nature and who would attribute it to that. I'm not doing that either. When there is evidence that there's an institutional reason or people are attributing things to religious reasons – and, and couching their bad behavior in religion, I think it's fair to look at the religious motivation. Secu- the nature of secularism is that it's an absence it's an absence of some unified belief. so there can be negative consequences of having not getting some of the good things that come from religion because you don't have religion, but that you cannot attribute you can attribute stuff to Harvard, you can attribute things to maybe being from New York or whatever it is I don't know I don't care. But you can't attribute it to like not God because I think that you can't prove that negative. But I want to move off of this point and close on a point. Grace, you've been very patient. (laughs) I want to close. I want to give you a chance in 60 seconds or less to say anything to wrap up. And then I want to take one more caller, if that's okay with you, Norm, and then wrap because it's already quite late.
7: Yeah, I mean, I just I think religion is a vehicle for power. I don't necessarily think, you know. I'm not blaming this on Jesus or whatever. Um, but, but I mean, that's, you know, it's easy to hide under institutions. Um, also, you know, nor my I, you know, I think that there's probably some updating you could do about, you know, understanding, um, trans people and what that means. Um, and I, I think that, the people that you're attributing like to compare the woke left and talk about Bill Maher is just, you know, wild to me, to me, I don't know. Cause that, that's not who the left is to me at all. Um, so, you know, and, and as far as you go, Brie, I would love to like, I mean, I think that we have a lot more conversations that we need to have, um, about this as we go forward, but it might be good to talk to some, maybe people with uteruses <laughs> who, um, maybe have an understanding. I mean, I, I appreciate you so much, you know, I'm not, you know, I I'm hear you grace. Of... And
1: that's why I'm going to go to either Maggie or Maria. Thank next. you.
7: Thank you. Have grace.
1: A have a good night. Look, I'm going to say, I saw Maggie very active in the chat. So I have some sense of what where Maggie's coming from. So I'm going to pull her up here, Maggie, unmute yourself and have the, the distinction of being the final caller. Maggie, go in once. Maggie, go in twice. Can you unmute yourself, Maggie? Are you still with us? All right, Maria. You just got lucky. Maggie. All right. Maria, what's on your mind this evening? Can you unmute yourself, Maria? See, I went to the back of the line, and people aren't expecting to be called on, even though I've been consistently calling on people with, Based on their avatars and names, (laughs) probably uteruses. Um, Maria, okay. Maria going once. Maria going twice. All right. Rika, hold us down. Close us out.
8: Oh my God! Really? Okay. Well, I I just gotta say that um, this conversation norm about the quote-unquote belief that men can get pregnant is your criticism of it is just fundamentally rooted in not understanding that there is an empirical distinction between sex and gender that needs to be stated. It has been historically studied. I can't believe you're an academic that does not understand that. That just blows my mind. But regardless, I'm so tired of this conversation devolving into something about the sanctity of life, when it's not really, that's not really what's at stake. It's about personhood. We, we've had, the, there is a meaningful conversation to have about whether or not the clump of cells, the blastula is the same as a full grown ass human being worthy of rights. And instead of having this conversation about the romanticized notion of of and and how we need to have as leftists like more civility and patience and whatever treat people who have this religious belief around life and how would it you know even though it actually oppresses people um and actively oppressing people like why can't we just move to have a conversation about personhood like i just don't understand why we keep getting stuck here um, and, and you know we we can even concede the notion that that it, there is life there. Biologists have determined cells are the basic unit of life. Cool. Let's move on. Like, but that doesn't mean that bacteria are the same as human beings. I'm I'm Berea, I have to say I'm like so. I get the desire to want to have a conversation about how we communicate our how we communicate with people who hold different views than us. I totally get that. I'm totally down. But at what point, what, at what point do we just, do we, does this press for civility press for understanding actually just become kind of like an obstacle for actually organizing for power?
1: So what do you make of that, um, norm that this should really be a question about personhood? Is that a, is that a, a useful metric that helps resolve some of the ethical tensions that you have raised in your book chapter, instead of talking about viability, et cetera, is that really just a proxy for when do we think rights should attach? And could that, is there, is there a time, is there like a kind of a fixed point do you think that could, that could lead to better resolution than some of the conversations that we've been having so far?
2: Um, I'll make two comments. Number one, because it's an issue which was raised and I feel I should, I have an obligation to answer it also for personal self-respect. I explicitly said Judith Butler stated that the court got the sex wrong. I think I made that very clear and I think you grasped that because we had an exchange after a court letter. So there was no question here of me confusing or conflating sex and gender. I quoted her as saying, the court got the sex wrong. Number two, I make no claims to having any scientific knowledge in this area. That's why I said, I consulted many physicians and biologists who I know to be very knowledgeable in this area. And I asked you as a student of the history of science, what was your opinion? And as I recall, my memory isn't that bad, you conceded that no, a a person of the male sex cannot have a child. Now, let's leave that aside and proceed to this question. Some people think that by using all sorts of circumlocutions, you can get around the problem. So the Supreme Court in Roe, it decided it was going to invent the concept, not of life, but of potential life. Your caller wants to use the expression, a bunch of cells versus personhood. You can invent every term you want, personhood, potential life. The court also used the expression life versus meaningful life. So Blackman says meaningful life begins at viability. But the fact of the matter is, if you don't know where life begins, you can't know where potential life begins. If you don't know where life begins- you can't know when meaningful life begins. Is, is that true? Are, of course, these are adjectives describing the noun. I, but if you don't know the
1: noun, you can't. The adjective can't change right, anything. But, but life is life is a much more fixed and definite point. Potential life. I can say I can say with complete confidence that a, at very least, a sperm and an egg, a sperm having implanted an egg, is potential life. Right. I mean, but, I, I, right.
2: You know what you just did? You just reversed Roe
1: v. Wade. No, I don't. No, I didn't. I because I've been, right. I've been very clear that I don't give a fig, is the right, formulation right, right. I, I used.
2: Whether, I didn't ask whether you give a fig. I said you just reversed Roe v. Wade. Because Roe v. Wade said that the state has the right to intervene when it comes to potential life. Now, you just said at the moment that a sperm fertilizes an egg, it's potential life.
1: So by the standard of Roe, yeah, but if, if you would let me, the pro-life no, argument. But if you let me finish, Norm, my point was that I can arbitrarily very easily make very credible arguments for that, including the existence of an egg as potential life, which is what I opened with earlier in this conversation. And you can easily say that to murder A a baby girl who was born with all of the eggs that she will ever have is to to be accountable for the murder of 401 people, assuming that I think I remember somewhere that 400 is about the number of eggs that you were born, you know, women are born with. So I, you know, I to me, that is much less significant a question, because I think most people, given the absurdity of the arguments of where life could potentially start. Don't actually believe that you should be able to ha- not have contraceptive and all of the things that could be considered abortificants if we believe that life began at these really early points, including pre-implantation of that egg and sperm into the walls of the uterus. Now, that being the case, to me, the potentiality of life is therefore irrelevant, is, is, is where I would come from. Moreover, I personally think that the fact of the life is not relevant. I'm much more interested in this question of Meaningful life because we all sit here, not everybody, yes. but I know I chat out on chicken and beef and a lot of things that are a hundred percent alive exactly no,
8: <laughs> e- exactly exactly and and the reality is is like if you I, I mean literally like cells every your skin cells are technically living like a cancerous mole is technically alive like and it, it, it you know a, I just don't understand. I think what really this this argument comes down to is not about what the Supreme Court is saying in text it's coming down to these this these romantic notions that people have about what they perceive to be a baby or the potential to be a baby and I get that that like of course, when you see like a young you know a young animal a young puppy or even even a young child and he gets hurt or something like that, you have these feelings about that, so I get that but the but that's not that's not what's at stake here and i just i understand norm like you're what you're i understand what you're saying in terms of like what the Supreme Court is saying and and what these decisions are being made or whatever but i'm I'm just not convinced that we need to take seriously um, the, the appreciation and romanticization of these cells as being, as a potential baby um, to advance a meaningful movement and argument forward about the fact that we need to preserve the rights of people who can get pregnant um, because they are full persons and we can make that and that's that should be just as compelling now i don't i don't i guess i'm not i'm not terribly invested in in debating all day with people who believe that you know again that that there should be like a I, or i guess let me back up i don't i guess i don't fully understand norm why we should have this social stigma that you're that you're um or the the stigma around this um choice. I guess I I don't really fully you haven't really fully communicated to me or at least I I don't recall why what the utility like the utility of that stigma is. We know from so many so much research what shame does. I mean Brené Brown, she she talks about it all the time. Shame and that stigma can do to people um, and how it can affect their lives. So, what is the like utility of of, of perpetuating this 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 stigma?
2: Okay. Um, first, I, I'm going to return to that question. I first to just answer something that Brianna said. With all due regard, Brianna, one has to be, I think, exercise a certain amount of caution before embracing ideas, which sound good, but which on reflection may be problematic. So you don't want to hear about potential life. You gave me your explanation and you said, I I want to use the idea of meaningful life. That to me is a more useful concept to play with. I'm not sure how much you know about the history of the Nazi eugenics program. The Nazi, uh, as you probably know, Jews weren't the first ones who were exterminated. The first ones who were exterminated uh, in hospitals because they needed to open up room for the war. The first ones they uh, exterminated, uh, create, you know, open up uh, places in the hospitals uh, for war casualties. The first ones that they exterminate were people who were defective. And what was the argument? The argument was there was a very famous slogan life that is not worth living life that is not worth living. And if you look at YouTube, you can actually I'm pretty sure you can find a film that was widely circulated in Nazi Germany, showing people who were born with all of these physical deformities one hand, one leg, a head where a knee should be, a knee where a head, you get the idea. And the argument was they couldn't live meaningful life lives. These were lives that were not worth living. And that was the inception of the Nazi extermination program which and you can fill, you know, the dot, dot, dot. You can, you can connect the dots. So I think you have to be a little bit more careful before you want to use the standard of meaningful life, which incidentally is extremely hurtful if we care about people's sensitivities, which liberal woke people seem to claim to be uh, sensitive. It's very uh, hurtful to parents who have children who were born with disabilities, the message is your child's life is not worth living, which is why, as I said, I have a problem with that exception that's always made. There's rape, there's incest, and they always say if a child has Down syndrome or some
1: diagnosable illness. Let's say I agree with all of you on that. Okay, okay. But, but let's put, let's oh. pin this down a little bit. I don't believe that the, the formulation meaningful life is about the quality. I'm, I'm way before the quality of life issues. This is about mm. whether or not you, you are enough of a person period, no matter what kind of person, you're enough of a person to protect. So is a chicken a meaningful life? Many people say yes, and they don't eat chickens. Right, is but I, is, I is, is oh my. my egg just chilling in my, are my last two 37 year old eggs chilling in my ovaries, meaningful lives without having been um, uh, fertilized? Some people say yes, because people take their eggs out and freeze them. And then a bunch mm-hmm. of states want to step in and say, you can't dispose of your eggs because those, ex- those are lives. And they won't let even people throw away their own, you know, own frozen eggs. Right. Uh So I think there's a meaningful I think there's a way to have a conversation about meaningful life that doesn't come anywhere close to having conversations about the ethics, which I agree with you are dubious of aborting, you know, fetuses on the basis of an amniocentesis. And so I I, I think it's worth having that conversation. I don't think we're going to have it tonight because it's 1127 and your girl has to get up and go to rising in the morning.
2: Uh, uh, Brianna. Yes. My only point was is a. As I point, as I made it in the in the in the um, podcast yesterday, it's mm-hmm. called the podcast. I don't know any of was terminology. <laughs> yes. Okay. My only point was that it's when I gave the example of cathapolic, it was very easy to ridicule the idea that at the moment of conception, sperm fertilized egg, that that's a life. But then I said, I read the three hundred page book waiting for okay what about the day after the day after and the day after the day after the day after i said that's when it begins to get complicated and i don't see a meaningful engagement with what happens a little bit later and that's when the whole issue comes up of is it potential life is it meaningful life it's a very complicated question and brace yourself Honest people can disagree about it. Honest people can disagree about it. that's all I'm saying. Now that brings us to the last question, and then we have to both call today because I have to finish this book before it finishes me. <laughs> so um the the woman asked, Why do I stress the stigma issue? The answer to me is pretty obvious. The answer is I wanted to. Maximize the right of a woman. I respected, as I said, the moral judgment of my mother. I said, let's maximize it. No viability standard. Let the woman have the right from conception to live birth. However, I felt it has to be within the context of this being a morally, let's just say, highly problematic to grave question and that it should be impressed upon those who don't think it's a problematic question. It should be impressed that it is. If you already believe it's a problematic question, then the moral stigma is completely irrelevant. You've already internalized that fact. However, for those who want to claim, as Katha says, It's a win-win situation, and it's an easy decision. And if you do not believe it's an easy decision, it's because you've been brainwashed. I would say that is a sick position to take. It's ill, and that at the very least, it should be granted that society can impress the fact that it's a grave decision, and then it's up to the woman what she chooses. That's the balance I was able to figure out in my head. Maybe it's a lousy balance, but that's how I figured it.
1: Rika, I'm going to give you the last word. If you can quickly, in a minute or so, respond, and then I'm going to wrap up with Professor Finkel- P- Professor uh, Finkelstein.
8: I think we sure. agreed on norm. Yeah, <laughs> I, norm. I just I just don't I see like we 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 have historic studies to show and uh, so many different instances how shame and stigma often lead to people taking their own lives Um, the consequences of shame and stigma lead to incredible ostracization, Um, you know, loss of social ties. Um, It's not, I, I find the argument, it still doesn't make sense to me how it outweighs any or creates any benefit. It seems like it creates more harm um, than good at the end of the day. I I really don't have anything else to say beyond that. I I just think that we shouldn't, you know, people should not feel ashamed to uh, get rid of a bunch of cells if they need to.
1: Well, look, Rika, I appreciate you weighing in. I think a lot of people feel the way that you feel, Norm. Thank you for getting these arguments on the table. I think we've unpacked a lot. Norm, if your point is that the left shies away from the difficult conversations, I think we certainly have put the pedal to the metal this evening and mooted a lot of really complicated things that none of us should expect to solve in an evening. Some folks might think this is some stuff that got unpacked that isn't worth unpacking and that is complicating the whole issue. And I respect that and I understand that. But I think the beauty of having these kinds of spaces where we're all in broad agreement is that there's very little risk or detriment to, you know, giving exogen to backsliding or, you know, empowering our political enemies um having these conversations and i'm sorry it's corny but what i consider to be a safe space and i'm really grateful to all of you for having this good faith conversation and to you norm for spending three hours again i don't know how this happened three hours of your evening with me here on colin i very much look forward to reading this book in its entirety somehow again we managed not to get to the ibram ex-Kindy part <laughs> of the book. But I anticipated that the callers might want to actually keep talking about the topic that was in the episode. So you're going to have to come back at some point. Um, perhaps with the panel would be good to to take a pro side of the Kindy argument and be prepared to have actually read his book and stuff. I, mean, I think that could be really useful for us all. So um, good night to everyone. who I had a really good exit song that I was going to play. It was a song that somebody brought up. Oh, I got it. I got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. Okay. Um, thank you to everyone. My Norm, doctor thank you. Whoops, requires. Sorry. No is <laughs> a lead in commercial. Do you have anything you want to say on their way out? Norm? No, I really enjoyed the candy conversation. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well then I'll leave you with a little Monte Python. Goodbye, Norm. And I will see the rest of you on Thursday. Ah, uh, Hindus and Mormons. And then Thanks, Norm.
4: There are those that follow Mohammed's books. I've never been one of them. I'm a Roman Catholic and have been since before I was born. And the one thing they say about Catholics is they'll take you as soon as you're warm. You don't have to be a six footer. You don't have to have a great brain. You don't have to have any clothes on, you're a Catholic the moment that came, because every sperm is sacred, every sperm is great, if a sperm is wasted, God gets quite irate.
3: Every sperm is sacred, every sperm is great, if the sperm...